Welcome to Oncology Nursing Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. For this special issue on non-Hodgkin lymphoma and chronic lymphocytic leukemia, I first met with Ms. Amy Goodrich, and to better understand the management of these complex diseases, I asked her to present patients from her practice, and she began with an older woman with follicular lymphoma. This was a 70-year-old lady who was diagnosed with a stage 3A non-bulky follicular lymphoma. She was incidentally noted to have left axillary adenopathy, and this was in late 2007. She was completely asymptomatic, but she did have multiple areas of disease in the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, measuring up to like 3.5 centimeters were her greatest. What was her life like at that point in time? So she is retired lady. Her daughter had just had twins. We did not know her at this time. She was actually up in the Philadelphia area and, you know, was completely functional and still is just a nice lady with a good performance status trying to live her life. Be a grandma. Yeah, and be a grandmother. Exactly. And so she did have a little interesting twist in her past medical history in terms of having a T2 and 3M0 adenocarcinoma of the breast treated with mastectomy, six cycles of CAF, and radiation. So these folks tend to be... kind of high-risk situation. uh, She did pretty well. She did pretty well. Um, We're never really happy about, you know, diving into therapy without thinking it through on these folks who have been exposed to some serious drugs previously. So fortunately... She had available to her locally E4402, which you may remember is the ECOG study that was looking at introducing rituximab to patients with asymptomatic low tumor burden follicular lymphoma, so the folks that we would typically be observing without therapy, and introducing rituximab to that population weekly times four, and if they achieved a partial response or better, folks were randomized to be retreated with rituximab upon progression or randomized to receive maintenance rituximab one dose every 13 weeks until progression. So that's the famous resort trial. Yes, the famous resort trial. So she was on the study. She was on the study. And so she received her rituximab, she achieved a partial response, and she was randomized to the maintenance rituximab arm, so one dose every 13 weeks. And I guess the unique thing about that study is the idea was that they would take rituximab if they were on that arm indefinitely as long as they didn't have progressive disease. Correct. That is absolutely correct. And that's what she was prepared to do. So she, in the meantime, her husband died and her daughter got a job in the Baltimore area and she relocated to Baltimore. And so that's when we met her and we also had E4402 available And so she basically just flipped sites and continued on with her maintenance rituximab and her remission stabilized and then began to improve on maintenance rituximab. She was doing great. And then Ash comes along and Brad Call presents his data with three and a half years of follow-up on this trial to both arms really showing that there was no statistically significant difference between the arms in terms of outcomes for patients. And truly, retreatment was favored. He recommended that retreatment be considered over maintenance rituximab for this patient population. And just to clarify in terms of her specific situation, so even though she wasn't 
really symptomatic. She had a lot of disease, or at least it seems like a fair amount of disease at diagnosis. How much of that sort of went away with the rituximab? So the vast majority of it went away. She, so she had a good response. She had a great response. She had a partial response to her first four doses. And then her response continued to deepen, eventually, you know, bottomed out because she technically hit a complete response and had been there for a while. Complete response. So no evidence of tumor. Everything was under one centimeter. Yes. Wow. So she really did very well. And so when the data came out saying that her arm was not the preferred arm, because in terms of cost and potential long-term toxicity of rituximab, both immunoglobulin issues and PML and all those things that we worry about when we treat patients with rituximab over and over and over again, we recommended to her that we not continue the maintenance rituximab because there was no data supporting that. And she had been getting maintenance rituximab for well over two years at that point. Any problem with it? None. No problems at all. And so we discussed it with the patient and the results, the pros, the cons, and basically explained to her that we were stopping it because there was no evidence to show us that she would benefit from continuing. And she actually left us to go into the community and found somebody who would give her maintenance rituximab off study. You know, hopefully most patients did not get to that point, but truly in good consciousness, it's hard to recommend to a patient like that that they continue to receive maintenance rituximab, not knowing what the long-term outcomes would be, but knowing that there was no superior outcome in terms of disease control response, length of response in the two arms. Although, I mean, actually, other than the issues of cost and resource utilization, the trial didn't really show that patients were worse off. I don't think they really had many complications from their tuximab. And they did not. They did not. And she, as soon as we started having discussions with her about stopping, we never got to the point where she said, I'm leaving if you don't do this. She just left. But again, she was somebody who had come from another practice and just hopped along to another one. So have you heard from her since then? So the research nurse for the trial actually keeps in touch with her and she is doing well and she's getting her maintenance for tuximab and... You know, we certainly wish her the best, but she was not at all in favor of stopping the maintenance rituximab. That's really interesting. You know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of breast cancer when you have women on endocrine treatment for five years. And if they've been able to get through it without any major problems, of course, a lot of people do have problems. But if they get through the five years, and that's a situation where it's used adjuvantly here. This lady's seen her tumor melt away. But these breast cancer patients, a lot of times they want to continue with the treatment also. So you can kind of understand why a patient might yeah, think that. Absolutely. Absolutely. But again, push never came to shove. She just, as soon as she heard that we were recommending stopping, she said, okay. And really never said I'm going somewhere else, but just went somewhere else. Interesting. Yeah. So just a couple things about this case and actually this trial also. You know, while it's true that, you know, the hope was that by using a rituximab longer, you know, the patients might do better. One of the things that I've heard people say is it was kind of interesting how well all the patients did in general. And that, you know, it kind of seems like, you know, in the past, follicular lymphoma, when it's been low tumor burden and the patient's not symptomatic, there was a lot of thought about just watching and waiting with those patients. And when they presented these data, the patients on the control arm that got the four courses of rituximab 
did pretty well. And I've heard people say, you know, I think more about using treatment now than I used to, particularly in an older patient where maybe getting them through three, four, five years with that chemo, you know, they could die of something else. Correct. What's been the discussions about this trial in your own place? So in our own place, we commonly use rituximab up front on older patients who, like this lady, have a lot of disease, but not one area truly screaming. We may have watched her a little bit longer than she was watched, but in general, we definitely are not waiting as long as we had historically because we have rituximab and can nip things in the bud a little more quickly without giving folks chemotherapy, and especially the older folks. This is a really nice option for them. And what have you seen in terms of toxicity with patients who get rituximab maintenance for a couple of years in terms of, you mentioned immunoglobulins, do you see many infections? I mean, it's kind of hard to say whether they would have gotten them anyhow, but what have you seen? It's really hard to say whether they would have gotten them anyway. I tend not to see lots of immunoglobulin and infection problems in patients like this one. It's the folks who, down the line, and in the maintenance rituximab setting where if they receive a rituximab-containing chemotherapy regimen, then based on the PRIMA data that you should consider continuing maintenance rituximab, I do see lots of problems in those patients. We really have a lot of patients who are on immunoglobulin replacement for chronic infections in the setting of hypogammaglobulinemia. So do you think somehow the chemo is adding to it? I don't know, but certainly... I think the further patients get down the line with their treatment options, and again, the PRIMA data is not really old enough that we have patients who most of these folks got tagged onto that philosophy after they had received several things. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And so that is truly, and I think in everyone's practice, that's the bulk of patients that you're doing that maintenance rituximab on. We have more of those patients who have been pre-treated and then get grandfathered into this philosophy than truly the newly diagnosed folks out of the gate. Now, we've talked about the option of rituximab alone, of watch and wait in follicular lymphoma, but certainly a common approach to these patients, particularly in a younger patient, is chemo and rituximab. And there's been a lot of discussion about which chemo. How are you approaching that question in your own center in terms of choosing the partner with rituximab? It's a tough decision to make. Typically, we have been moving more commonly to bendamustine with rituximab. I can't say that we've gotten rid of CHOP completely for follicular lymphoma as initial therapy. We tend to think about CHOP more if the disease is not documented to be transformed, but is acting badly. And by transformed, you mean turning into a more aggressive, diffuse, large B-cell type tumor? Correct. Because in that instance, CHOP and rituximab are indicated. Bendamustine is not recommended at this point for large cell lymphoma. So whether it's de novo or transformed, Bendamustine, at this point, we don't have strong enough data to use it. So those folks would get CHOP. But in patients with low-grade follicular lymphomas who we've been watching and they've just been plugging along and are finally meeting criteria to get therapy, we would consider bendamustine the front runner for those folks. For patients we've been watching and 
either start having symptoms or their LDH starts creeping up or things are really growing a little faster than we would typically see, we always biopsy those folks. But if their histology continues to be low grade, those are the folks that we would think about using CHOP in for initial therapy. If you have a patient with follicular lymphoma who's about to begin CHOP, what would you say to them in terms of patient education to prepare them for that? And what would you say to somebody beginning arbendamustine? Well, the teaching is, it's similar, but it's very different. In terms of the myelotoxicity, they are similar, although certainly we all know that CHOP is more myelosuppressive than bendamustine. In terms of patient teaching, those really are the same because bendamustine also will impact blood counts. So those don't change. The true differences are you're not doing echoes for the bendamustine folks and talking to patients about long-term cardiac toxicity. You're not having peripheral neuropathy discussions. You're not talking about prednisone and the mood changes and the glucose spikes for the existing diabetics. So it truly is very different. You're not talking about hair loss. You're not setting the ladies up to go get, you know, their wigs and things like that. It's very different. Aside from blood counts, it is very different. The nausea discussions are different. And like I said, the neuropathy and the cardiac and the glucose issues really go away with bendamustine. No, we were talking before about the resort trial that your patient was on looking at the issue of extending rituximab monotherapy into a maintenance phase. What about using long-term maintenance rituximab after our chemo? Is that something you do a lot? So that is something that we do commonly based on the PRIMA trial that looked at patients who had received a rituximab-containing regimen and randomized to observation or a single dose of rituximab, 375 milligrams per meter squared every eight weeks. And the maintenance rituximab arm was found to be superior. So we commonly now, for patients who achieve at least a partial response to chemotherapy with rituximab, offer them maintenance rituximab every eight weeks for two years. The majority of patients are more than happy to continue to receive maintenance rituximab. Anything else that you want to say in terms of new developments in follicular lymphoma, you know, regarding management of older patients, you know, there's always a hope in every part of oncology to find treatments that don't include chemotherapy. And one that I've heard about that at least is being studied in trials is the so-called R-squared regimen, the IMID, immune modulatory agent, lenalidomide, combined with rituximab, both biologics. Is that something that you've had any of your patients on or heard any discussion about? So we do use lenalidomide with rituximab in our follicular lymphoma patients, also in some of our CLL patients. We tend to reserve those things for patients who we feel are not going to tolerate chemotherapy well or who haven't tolerated chemotherapy well. Certainly none of these patients are folks that we would typically take to any form of transplant or more aggressive therapy, but that accounts for a very large number of patients with these diseases. And so I have a case later on about a patient who really grew through everything and had phenomenal disease stabilization with lenalidomide and rituximab. So I'm very impressed with the regimen. 
again, picking and choosing is really such a personal thing where you fit these drugs in. I see that with Zevalin and Bexar for these diseases as well. Those are radioimmune therapy agents. Right, radioimmunotherapy drugs. So as our toolbox gets more and more robust and we have more and more data, it will become harder to have any sort of cookie cutter. It's hard now. It will become even harder to have a cookie cutter approach for these patients. I've heard about the art of oncology. This is definitely the art of oncology. And speaking of that, your 63-year-old lady with diffuse large B cells sounds like she was pretty interesting to take care of. Why don't we talk about her? Yes, she was very interesting. And I chose this lady because I thought she very elegantly demonstrated the natural history of diffuse large B cell lymphoma. I think we become complacent with diffuse large B-cell at times, and she is a good reminder of why workups and treatment should be expedited as much as possible in this patient population. So she is a lovely 63-year-old, previously healthy, who actually presented in February of 2012 with some weight loss, some night sweats, some dyspnea on exertion. She's a PhD student, so of course she was in the midst of a new semester and went to a local walk-in clinic. They really thought she had a viral syndrome. She got some antibiotics and was instructed to follow up with her primary care if things did not improve. And so she, of course, wanted to get her semester over with, so doesn't surface again until May, when she was really becoming much more ill. She had palpable adenopathy. She continued to lose weight. She was continuing to have drenching night sweats. Her primary care really got a hold of her and did nothing and said, you need to see an oncologist. This is something that I know is going to end up being a malignancy. So again, this was done at an outside facility and her blood counts were abnormal. We don't have those. But her bone marrow showed involvement with a B-cell lymphoma. So sort of a vague, yes, this is a malignancy, but what is this? So she gets a PET scan done, a PET CT in early June, and she's got uptake in multiple extranodal sites, pulmonary liver, kidney. She's got splenic involvement, multiple nodal areas. She had palpable cervical lymphadenopathy, so her local oncologist sent her to an ENT for a cervical biopsy, and unfortunately, tissue wasn't accessible when she walked in the door. And those of us who deal with lymphoma patients, although we anticipate that somebody with an aggressive picture like this lady has, the nodes are going to just get bigger and bigger. We all know that there are times that they walk in the door and things are grossly different. And that's part of the art of lymphoma for sure. And then unfortunately, and to this day, I don't know what happened, but the patient's local oncologist dropped off the face of the earth. So she really slipped through a very big crack, went back to her primary care, who then this is over a month later, because this is late July now, the primary care arranges a liver biopsy, fortunately sends it to Hopkins for review. When the results came in, the primary care instructed her to come to RED. So she hits RED, she is febrile, she's tachycardic, she's in respiratory distress. She's got a very large right pleural effusion with mediastinal shift. She has her lung tapped for 1,800 cc's of bloody fluid that ends up, the cytopath ends up showing that it was involved with lymphoma. She has SVT during the procedure. 
She's got massive splenomegaly. She's got bilateral edema. They admit her immediately as soon as they got her respiratory and cardiac status stabilized. She hit the floor, the inpatient unit, and her scan showed significant worsening of her adenopathy. She had near total obstruction of the right pulmonary artery. Her right-sided bronchi and segmental bronchi were being occluded by a huge hilar adenopathy and subcarinal adenopathy. She had multiple liver lesions. Her spleen was almost completely replaced with disease. It extended into her pelvis. So this lady was very sick, multiple kidney masses, and she had all sorts of adenopathy everywhere. So this lady was really in trouble. I was just sort of thinking about what it would have been like if she had been diagnosed and started on outpatient RCHOP a few months earlier, probably would have just cruised right through it. That's exactly the point of this case, that this disease can very quickly become a medical emergency and should be treated very expeditiously. Her labs, amazingly, because she was otherwise completely healthy, her comprehensive panel was amazingly normal. Her LDH was only slightly elevated, which was surprising as well. But her white count was high. She had a left shift and she had urosepsis. So it's never nice to treat patients with active sepsis and the issues that she had. Also, as an aside, all of her HIV and hepatitis studies were negative, so she had a good workup done. So we tried to pulse her with steroids to get her stabilized and get some allopurinol in her and get her urosepsis under control. Her disease laughed at the one gram of methylprednisolone. She had absolutely no symptom improvement at all. So earlier than we would have liked, we started her on CHOP, And we gave her the CHOP initially and the rituximab a few days later. And this is a strategy that we use when patients we feel are really too sick to have a rituximab infusion reaction. So to debulk them a bit with the chemotherapy and then follow it up a few days later with the rituximab. It's typically not the way it's given, although studies have been done with that approach. But... So she got her CHOP followed by her rituximab. And then due to her, you know, the multiple extranodal sites and her elevated LDH and her bone marrow involvement and the extent of her disease, we initiated intrathecal prophylaxis on her as well, which always somewhat complicates the care of these patients with diffuse large B-cell. And amazingly, she was a new person by the she walked out of the hospital. She came in flat on her back and walked out of the hospital and is doing amazingly well currently. You know, truly, what is her long-term outlook? She is a high-risk patient. If we go through her IPI status, she is over 60. Her LDH was elevated. She had multiple extranodal sites. Age, performance status was three. So age, she gets a point. Performance status, yes, it was three. LDH was elevated, multiple extranodal sites, and advanced stage disease. So she, on paper, is the highest risk patient that can walk through your door. But we are very happy that she so rapidly improved and is headed in the right direction. So, you know, one thought that comes up with this story is, you know, hear how much tumor she had Mm -hmm. and clinically that it seemed like it was fairly rapidly progressing. And 
you know you're about to give a treatment that's going to, I'm not going to say melt it away, but certainly have a quick effect, which is exactly what happened. What were you all thinking about in terms of the potential concern for tumor lysis syndrome? And what is tumor lysis syndrome? So tumor lysis syndrome is a situation where the body is, I explain it to patients, that is overloaded with the byproducts of the dying malignant cells. And it's really a uric acid based issue and the uric acid can crystallize in the kidneys and patients can get high potassiums and low calciums and all sorts of very bad things including neuromuscular collapse and cardiac arrest and patients can require dialysis to get them through their tumor lysis syndrome and she was very high risk for tumor lysis syndrome given her very high tumor burden. Our saving grace, I believe, is that she was otherwise so healthy. Had she been somebody who came through the door, and many 63-year-olds will with some degree of renal dysfunction or on a lot of meds that are very hard on the kidneys, it really could have been a very different situation for her. This is somebody that was treated as an inpatient, but should always be treated as an inpatient, folks that you're really worried about. And so she did remarkably well, thank goodness. What exactly do you do to monitor for tumor lysis syndrome and then treat it if it develops? So the most common outpatient approach to tumor lysis syndrome is to prophylax with allopurinol. So to start allopurinol 24 to 48 hours prior to chemotherapy and continue for at least a week after and how long people continue after that is very different. But really trying to get the uric acid down prior to starting the chemotherapy. But what you're looking for, you're looking at renal function and you're looking at the uric acid level. The potassium will always be the first electrolyte to start shifting. The potassium will shift within as few as six hours. It goes um, up. It goes up, yep. And then the calcium goes down, phos goes up. And so you're looking at all of those things. Patients can have coagulopathies also with tumor lysis syndrome. So you are looking at their coags as well. So it's a very complicated thing when it happens. And there are two phases of tumor lysis syndrome. There is laboratory tumor lysis syndrome, where you see shifts in some of these numbers, but are able to keep them under control. And then there is clinical tumor lysis syndrome, where patients truly start having renal failure and cardiac issues and neuromuscular issues. And fortunately, we have a much larger arsenal for tumor lysis syndrome, which includes respiracase and a number of other newer drugs that work a little smarter and a little differently than allopurinol. So our incidence of fatal tumor lysis syndrome is much less common for that to happen now than it did 20 years ago. So I want to get to your next case, but mm-hmm. you know, you brought up case. What is it and how many times have you used it and what happens? Is there any problem, uh, side effects or issues? So case, I personally have used it intermittently on outpatients, not inpatients. I'm an outpatient-based person. It is commonly used as prophylaxis in the inpatient setting. I have used it in the outpatient setting when we're just worried that allopurinol isn't enough. So rasburicase actually makes uric acid more soluble. It makes it water-soluble. So it changes the structure of 
the uric acid. It's actually a much smarter drug than allopurinol, which just does some fancy blocking. But, you know, case attacks the allopurinol at the source. The problem is your body doesn't easily excrete the allopurinol, and that makes it water-soluble. So it's a great drug. Again, it is commonly used as prophylaxis in the inpatient setting. It's hard to pull that off in the outpatient setting because truly someone who needs to be prophylaxed with case should be in the inpatient setting to receive their therapy. So hopefully this lady will you know, continue on and never have another problem. But I'm just kind of curious, maybe you can talk a little bit about the CNS prophylaxis mm-hmm. that she's having when she gets it and what you've observed in other patients and her, for that matter, in terms of side effects or problems. Sure. So if you look at the NCCN guidelines, intrathecal prophylaxis, a lumbar puncture for cytology and consideration of intrathecal prophylaxis is recommended for a certain population of patients with diffuse large B cell. It's folks with testicular involvement. It's folks with sinus type involvement. They're high risk for CNS involvement, bone marrow involvement. And then if you have folks who have a high LDH and I believe it's two or greater extranodal sites, that those folks also be considered. I don't know in the community how often intrathecal prophylaxis is undertaken, but certainly in an academic setting, I would suspect that, and certainly in my setting, if anyone has those criteria, we always do a lumbar puncture and we always prophylax if their CSF is negative for lymphomatous involvement. Our philosophy is, first of all, we can do it, We have the facilities to do it. I think that's probably the biggest impediment in the community. We have the facilities to do it. And you really get one shot to do this right out of the gate for folks. And, you know, hindsight is always 20-20. And even if a small percentage of patients that meet the criteria and don't get prophylaxed end up with CNS relapse, there's not a good way to pick and choose who those people will be. But truly, it does make the therapy a little more difficult for patients. Getting intrathecal chemotherapy is not a pleasant thing. There are side effects. The most common issues that patients have are nausea and headaches. Those are truly the most common issues. And so we all know that they're nauseated from their chemotherapy. What we try to do is give them their chemotherapy, and it's normally CHOP with rituximab, and try to do that lumbar puncture during the days that they're on the prednisone so that we are reducing inflammation issues related to lumbar punctures as well. And we have a nice little cocktail of antiemetics and lorazepam and hydration that we do because we do this so frequently and really get patients through this pretty smoothly, all things considered. Let's talk about your 64-year-old man with CLL. I think he might have been the patient you were referring to before. I'm curious to hear about him. Right. So he was a very complicated patient, both medically and socially. So he was a 64-year-old gentleman diagnosed with a stage 4A grade 1 follicular lymphoma when his primary care picked up adenopathy on an annual exam. So he was very motivated to avoid chemotherapy from the second he was diagnosed. We watched him for a number of years, and about five years after his diagnosis, he began 
experiencing some symptoms, abdominal symptoms, mainly pain and bloating related to his now bulky over five centimeter lymphadenopathy. And so we tend to biopsy folks when it's been so long since their initial diagnosis. And so his biopsy confirmed continued low-grade lymphoma. Because he was very anxious to avoid chemotherapy, we recommended that he receive single-agent rituximab first. He declined and opted to pursue a very aggressive holistic avenue he had Oh, it was at least 20 supplemental tablets of all sorts of things that he was taking. He was eating no raw sugars. He was doing dietary, so dietary and all sorts of complementary medications. And so those didn't work. Was that something he had done his whole life or was it new for him? He was somebody who never liked to take medications. This was an extreme for him. He was not somebody who came to us on 20 different complementary medications, but he really wanted to make sure that before he received treatment from us that he did every single thing he could otherwise to try to avoid it. So a month later, he comes in with increasing symptoms and finally agrees to receive rituximab. And he received four weekly doses and had melting. It was amazing melting of all of his previously noted lymphadenopathy. So for the past five years, all these things that had been growing just completely melted away. It was astonishing. And so he insisted that it was his priming with these all these holistic medications. <laughs> the, and who knows? Who knows? We know less about those medications than we know. But anyway, he insisted it was this month of prep that he did that contributed to his phenomenal response. Unfortunately, at the end of his therapy, he develops a new rapidly enlarging right neck nodal mass. And the biopsy reveals diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, so he has transformed disease. So truly his follicular, his true follicular disease melted, and this transformed area did not respond to the single-agent rituximab. So we initiated CHOP and rituximab, and that was his only area of active disease. It was on his neck. It was very visible, a partial response after three progression, but further progression by the end of cycle four. So he's now growing through CHOP and rituximab, which is clearly not a good thing. So we do a biopsy, and it is persistent diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Could I just ask, how often do you see this transformation from the indolent type of lymphoma, like follicular, to the aggressive, like diffuse large B-cell? It is very common. It occurs in approximately 30% of all patients with low-grade lymphomas. So it is a real portion of patients that will have this phenomenon. And once it happens, you get them on a path of diffuse large B-cell-like therapy, including transplant, to attempt to cure the high-grade portion and leave yourself with the chronic maintenance of the low-grade portion as you had been dealing with prior to the transformation. So kind of it's like going from being a patient like your patient one to your patient two. First, you've got a situation, a very slow-growing kind of situation, try not to make the patient sick, to a situation like with your second patient where, you know, she got into trouble very quickly from the tumor. Correct. That's correct. 
So again, he's growing through CHOP at the end of his fourth cycle, and it's persistent diffuse large B cell. And so we started him on ice with rituximab, which is a very common diffuse large B cell salvage regimen. And we were trying to get him to transplant. So we recommended rice, ice plus rituximab, followed by transplant. He really did not want more chemotherapy. He really wanted radiation. He was a very intelligent man, did a lot of research, and just had in his mind that radiation therapy was going to be curative for this diffuse large B cell transformation. So he received radiation therapy to the right neck, and within a month after radiation, his neck mass was just exploding again. So this is bad on bad. He's now grown through CHOP and rituximab. He's now grown through radiation. And so anyone who's worked in radiation or is familiar with radiation in lymphoma patients, you know that lymphomas rarely grow back in a site that has been radiated. So this is really quite an ominous situation that we were in with him. So he finally agrees that he should start rituximab with ice. And again, he got some initial stabilization, but regrowth, more growth after three cycles. So we're in a really bad spot now. So this man, as I said, very well-educated gentleman, traveled all over the East Coast looking for trials, getting opinions. Most centers, most trials, he did not meet criteria for the trials, not necessarily because of his performance status or because of his laboratory findings. The issue truly with him, I believe, for those trials were that his disease was on a daily basis rapidly growing and unfortunately was on his neck. So big time airway issues, but also he clearly did not meet any criteria of having a three month life expectancy. So I was very impressed that every trial that he pursued, they were not interested in having him because he was in such a bad spot. Sometimes clinical trials where you don't know whether things are going to work or not, they're not always the best thing for patients. And this was clearly the situation with this guy. So he was started on lenalidomide and rituximab with concurrent radiation. So we unfortunately were forced to go back and radiate that neck mass again. He was having difficulty swallowing. I mean, we were truly worried about his airway. So it was amazing that he received three cycles of lenalidomide and rituximab, tolerated it beautifully. This is a very heavily pretreated man now who had some minor count issues. He had no neuropathy. He did beautifully. It stabilized his disease. And really, the true win of lenalidomide, three cycles, and eventually he ended up progressing. But he deteriorated to the point where he allowed his friends and his family to become involved. Until this point, he had really shut people out and was taking care of it all on his own. But this allowed him the chance to come to terms with the fact that he was going to rapidly die and he needed people around him. I know that for his partner, there is no way that his partner ever would have been as involved had we not had that bridge 
of lenalidomide to hospice. But truly, I was completely impressed that this disease stabilized for so long. It was truly astonishing. And I see here in your write-up that he, quote, died of airway obstruction, which does not sound very pleasant. It doesn't sound very pleasant. And it's really rare that we have patients die of airway obstruction, but this was truly just a matter of a transformation in the worst possible place that you could have it. And was the team able to relieve his discomfort? What was it like those last few days for him? So the last few days, it was difficult for him, mainly in terms of coming to terms with the fact that it was time to leave his home and home hospice and go to an inpatient facility. And I had many discussions with him on the phone, at which point he was having right-sided facial numbness, and he had slurred words, and he really was not swallowing well. And he fought this as long as he could. And I was part of the team that finally convinced him that he needed inpatient care. He needed 24-hour care. And truly, when they got him to inpatient hospice, they were really able to control his pain and his air hunger and his secretions and truly helped him have a much better death than he would have at home. To obtain an oncologist's perspective on NHL and CLL, I met with Dr. Mitch Smith, who also discussed patients from his practice, beginning with a woman with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So this is a woman who had CLL diagnosed when she was at age 58. White count was about 50,000. Other counts were normal. She was asymptomatic. She had some frequent infections, and that's common in CLL patients, but no other indication that she required therapy. But her white count was rising, and when I saw her three years later, her white count was over 200,000, but again, not anemic, normal platelets. And the question was, when do you institute treatment? She didn't have any red flags that said she would need to be treated, but, you know, at some point you get a little nervous about those high white counts. So let's just take a step back and use this case, you know, to talk a little bit more globally about CLL and maybe review anything that we've learned about the disease in the last few years, beginning basically in terms of what we know about, you know, sort of why it develops and sort of what the pathogenesis of this disease is. And so I wish we could answer that in more detail. Clearly, CLL and indolent lymphoma is a slow accumulation of these abnormal cells, abnormal B cells. And what we are learning is that the B cell receptor, which is the immunoglobulin on the surface, which signals the cells to stay alive and to grow, is critical, and there are some new drugs targeting that. And also the fact that the cells don't die, and so they are resistant to what's called apoptosis, and there are some drugs which target that. So there's some excitement that knowing the biology of slow growth through the B cell receptor signaling and lack of cell death could be targets, and there are drugs out there. But the other thing is that CLL really is at least two diseases. One has immunoglobulin genes hypermutated, which is a fancy way of saying that they've been processed through the lymph node germinal center, and those patients tend to do very well, even better than usual. And it's the patients with the unmutated immunoglobulin genes that tend to be the ones who need treatment sooner and have a little bit more aggressive disease. How do people find out that they have CLL? How did this woman find out? The most common is a asymptomatic white blood cell count that you get on routine labs. 
You might be getting it as a preoperative evaluation. You might be getting your routine physical. I see a lot of patients, white counts, you know, a little high, 15,000. Someone picks that up and you look back and it's actually been climbing slowly for the last two or three years if they've been getting, you know, annual counts. And, you know, at 11,000, 12,000, people don't think about it. Suddenly the white count's 15,000, someone thinks about it. Other people show up with enlarged nodes, a lot of small nodes in the neck under the arm. They'll go to the doctor, you get a count. One of the things I see a lot is people who have nodes and they immediately go for a lymph node biopsy where if someone did a CBC and saw 20,000 white cells and confirmed that it was CLL, you might avoid the lymph node biopsy because you know that that's just part of the disease. How do you make the diagnosis specifically? Primarily, it is characterization of a monoclonal B-cell population. That's usually done these days by flow cytometry on either a lymph node or most commonly the peripheral blood. So it's a pretty easy diagnosis to make, and then you can characterize it further if you want, but usually just blood count and flow cytometry to confirm that it is the typical CLL. Some lymphomas can show up in the blood, so you might get what looks like CLL and actually be a follicular lymphoma, but that's why we do the flow cytometry. And overall, what's the prognosis for people with CLL? What's the longest they might live? Do they usually die of the disease? Yeah, so I usually tell patients they're more likely to die with the disease than of the disease. Now, there are some patients, a percentage, who have the more rapidly growing disease, certain cytogenic abnormalities like 17P that really have you know, what we consider real disease that needs to be treated. But the majority of patients actually either never need treatment or need fairly mild treatment and die of other things. Their average survival, we used to quote 8 to 10 years, but it's clearly much better than that in the current era. So this lady in your write-up here, I see that in the first few years, I guess she wasn't treated. How do you decide whether or not to treat the patient? So it's easy if they have symptoms or they're getting progressively cytopenic. So their hemoglobin's dropping, their platelets are dropping, they have rapidly enlarging nodes. It's also easy to do nothing when the count's pretty stable and they feel fine because you can't cure the disease. And so the goal of treatment is to make the patient feel better And even though the treatments are fairly gentle, one doesn't really want to incur side effects and toxicities if the patient's perfectly fine and is going to live for many years without symptoms. So this patient was sort of in the middle because she was feeling well. Other counts were normal, but the white count was doubling, you know, relatively quickly. You're up into a high range, and she was having frequent infections. So her immune system wasn't normal, and the thought is, you know, maybe you want to treat the disease, restore the immune system to a more normal state, and reduce the incidence of infection. So that was sort of the main reason to think about treating her, high white cells and frequent infections. And I see that she had URIs and an episode of herpes zoster. What are the typical kinds of infections you see in patients with CLL? Yeah, most commonly you see URIs. They tend to be hypogammaglobulinemic, so their antibody levels are low. And so I would say most frequently upper respiratory infections. Occasionally see UTI and other infections. Shingles occasionally, but not the most common. So she was fairly typical. What was this lady's attitude towards the disease and her understanding of it? Well, so she had been cared for by, you know, an excellent oncologist, and she had a pretty good idea of her disease when I saw her, and she came primarily because the count was getting in a range where someone had suggested she needs to be treated. But she had an excellent understanding, the reasons for and against treatment, and was not pushing to get treated, but was willing to do so if I thought that it was necessary. What was her lifestyle like? Was she working? She was working and very active person, but fortunately had a job where she could take some time off if she needed to.
Now, I see, too, that when you first saw her, she had a palpable spleen. Why does that occur, and what are the implications of it? Yeah, so I basically tell people in general that a spleen is a large lymph node. So just as your lymph nodes enlarge, your spleen enlarges. If you take it out or look at it under the microscope, you find it's basically full of the CLL cells. It doesn't have a lot of significance. Spontaneous rupture almost never occurs. You can rupture with trauma. So if they have a big spleen extending down into the abdomen, I always tell them to be careful if they're in a car accident or something to make sure they get checked out. But the other thing it can do is the blood cells will pool in the spleen. So as patients get anemic and thrombocytopenic, oftentimes hypersplenism is part of that picture. So you saw this lady, and I guess you were thinking she's kind of maybe now, after these several years of being observed, now she's maybe getting close to treatment. What happened next? Yeah, so we had decided that the way her white count was rising, that she would be getting into symptomatic problems and anemia and thrombocytopenia in the near future. And if you think you're going to need treatment within three to six months, there's no sense in waiting. You'd like to wait years, as she did. Unfortunately, she developed a fairly significant influenza pneumonia and then had a secondary bacterial infection, and I didn't want to treat her in the face of that. So we held off treatment until we resolved all those infectious issues and then decided to begin treatment. Did she have to be in the hospital? She was hospitalized for a long time with the pneumonia, yes. Hmm. Were you thinking, geez, I wish she had been treated a little earlier? Yep, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> That's sort of the art, is trying to do it a little bit beforehand. And in retrospect, it would have been nice to treat her before that. Although you could argue, I treat her, and a month later she gets this, and now I'm thinking I suppressed her immune system and she got it because I got treated. So it's always a bit of an art form, and you really don't know the exact right time to do it. So what was the next step? So we got our infection under control. The white count was you know, now up in the mid-200,000 range, and we decided to treat her. We discussed various things. This was back in 2008. I think today we might lean more on bendamustine-based regimens, but I did talk to her about the recently closed intergroup study, which compared fludarabine rituximab with fludarabine cyclophosphamide rituximab, discussing the pros and cons of two drugs and three drugs, And she elected not to go on the trial and preferred to go on the two-drug fludarabine rituximab regimen, thinking that she wanted to minimize her risk of toxicity. What do we know about these two agents, fludarabine, rituximab, and you also mentioned bendamustine in CLL? Well, they're all very active agents. Rituximab is not the most active as a single agent, but clearly improves the results with chemotherapy, as it does in most lymphomas. And fludarabine has been our mainstay for years, but it is a little bit immunosuppressive as well as lowering the neutrophils. It also wipes out some of your T cells, and we sort of respect its ability to increase risk of infection before it gets better. Bendamustine, similar, but less effect on the T cells and more of a bone marrow suppressing agent. Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, just four years ago, I guess pretty much she was going to get fludarabine. That must have been a little bit scary given the infectious problem she'd just gotten by. Absolutely. So this is a patient, when I do the two drugs, I often do not add prophylactic antibiotics and antifungals, et cetera, but in this patient I did. And what happened when she got treated? She actually tolerated it beautifully. Counts came down nicely. She did not have any tumor lysis, which is another concern when you're starting with a high white count. I did not give her rituximab the first cycle because, again, with the very high white count, we're concerned about infusion reactions. You can do it, but there's no urgency to do it. So I gave her fludarabine the first cycle. White cells came down nicely, and then the subsequent cycle, she got fludarabine plus rituximab. 
She tolerated it really well, had no infections, felt much better, and her counts basically normalized. And her quality of life went back to normal or was good? Excellent quality of life, no infections. She was very happy. So you mentioned tumor lysis. What is it? How do you prevent it, diagnose it, and treat it? So tumor lysis is when we kill too many cells too quickly, and mostly it's metabolism of the dying remnants of the cell, which primarily turn into uric acid and get excreted through the kidney, so we worry about high uric acid levels. Also, acutely, the potassium and phosphorus can go up as well because they are released from inside the cell. It usually is seen more commonly in rapidly growing lymphoma, such as Burkitt lymphoma, rapid-growing bulky disease, but it has been seen in slower-growing diseases when there's a high tumor burden, as in this case. So it's primarily monitoring lots of fluids. You can give allopurinol. There's some concern about giving allopurinol with bendamustine, increasing the risk of allergic reactions and rashes. There are other drugs if the uric acid does go up. Raspuricase will rapidly lower it, but that's intravenous and expensive. So the main thing is just to monitor it very closely in the first one to two weeks of instituting therapy and make sure that those laboratory abnormalities are not affecting kidney function. So she got treated with how many courses? She actually got six courses. And then you stopped? And then I stopped. Now, in follicular lymphoma, which I'm going to ask you a little bit about a little bit later, a lot of people would continue rituximab in terms of rituximab maintenance, so to speak. What do we know about rituximab maintenance in CLL and, for that matter, in FL? So rituximab maintenance in CLL has not really been well studied. The CALGB studies all gave four weeks of rituximab about a month or two after the six cycles of fludarabine-based therapy. So I often do that to sort of consolidate the remission, but then I don't, in the absence of data, continue rituximab maintenance for two years, as we often do in follicular lymphoma. So it may work well, but the sense is rituximab's not as active in CLL as in follicular lymphoma. So in the absence of data, I generally don't do it. It may be useful. There are some ongoing studies looking at it. There are some studies adding lenalidomide to rituximab or alone as maintenance. So I think it's an active area of investigation. And maybe you can just briefly comment in terms of globally what the similarities are between the indolent lymphomas, follicular lymphoma, and CLL and differences. So in general, indolent lymphoma and CLL are quite similar in the sense of They're slow-growing, often asymptomatic, respond well to treatment, but not curable. CLL and small lymphocytic lymphoma, or SLL, are really the same disease, SLL being diagnosed in a lymph node and CLL being diagnosed in blood. So there are a lot of similarities. Many of the drugs which work in one work in the other. There are differences. Because follicular lymphoma is primarily in lymph nodes, the mechanism of cell death by chemotherapy, in particular rituximab, may be different. Follicular lymphoma is much more responsive to rituximab. CLL has a lower CD20 and, for other reasons, may be less sensitive. So the role of targeted therapy and things like that may be different. So clinically, they're very similar, but biologically, they're different. And as we get into targeted therapy, I think we can't really lump them in terms of treatment. We can lump them in terms of patient education and what to expect you know, over the next 10 or 15 years from diagnosis. I guess one thing that does seem different is in terms of the overall course of 
the patient and particularly the issue of whether to start therapy. It seems like both in endolymphomas and in CLL, a lot of times there's a question, can you just observe the patient off treatment? How does that sort of sit with patients? You know, the watch and wait or watch and worry approach takes some education of the patient. You know, they come in, they say, oh, I got this lymphoma, leukemia, cancer, whatever. Did we catch it early? Yes, we have to treat it right away. So it takes some education. And what I find over time is that as they get comfortable with the idea that they may have had this disease for a while, they're going to have it for a long time, they're really not symptomatic, they do come around to the idea of being comfortable with this approach. So much so that a couple years down the line, when I might think they finally need treatment, they're somewhat resistant because they say, gee, I've done well for three, four years. Why now? So it's sort of a switch. But it does take some time to educate the patient that starting early and knocking the white count down or shrinking the lymph nodes is not going to make them feel better necessarily. So the goal is not to make the CAT scan look better or the blood count look better. It's make the patient better. So we would try to institute therapy when it's going to be beneficial for the patient, not just so we can say, gee, the count's down or the lymph nodes are smaller. So now this lady actually gets observed for a little bit, and a couple years later, the white count starts to go back up. What were you thinking at that point, and what was going on at that point with her? So again, we're monitoring every few months, and we see, you know, for two years, there's no evidence of abnormal lymphocytes, and then two years later, they start to rise doesn't mean we have to jump in and treat again, just as we did initially. We can watch. She was watched for about three years before her initial treatment. And as the count started to rise, she was watched for another two years this time, from the time the count started to rise till the time the white count got up into the 200,000 range. And this time she started to have some fatigue and anemia. She'd not had any frequent infections. But again, given the rate of rise and the number and the fact that in the past, she got into more trouble. As the count got into this range, we decided that treatment would be reasonable again. Not urgent, but we started to explore what the options were for treatment. So what were you thinking at that point, not just in terms of what you could give her in general that's approved, but also things that are in development and not yet approved, maybe on trials? Right. So, I mean, off trial, one would think of bendamustine as a drug she hadn't had. She had four years interval from fludarabine, so we could certainly go back to that. But, you know, in this day and age, we really do think about targeted non-chemotherapy type agents. And so we explored those options. And as I mentioned before, there's two drugs which are fairly far along in clinical development, which inhibit signaling through the B-cell receptor. One is called ibrutinib, which hits Bruton's tyrosine kinase, which when that's defective genetically in boys, they don't develop B cells and so don't develop immunoglobulins. And so knocking that out seems to be a reasonable target and turned out to be a very active target in B cell lymphomas. So that is one that's out there. And then there's an enzyme called PI3 kinase. And there's one form of that, the PI3 kinase delta, which is prevalent in lymphocytes and not in other cells. So there's a drug called CAL-101, which is also active, and that hits the PI3 kinase delta. Both of those agents are pills. They're relatively well-tolerated. And in early phase one, now phase two trials, have shown quite remarkable activity in a broad range of B-cell lymphomas. So we did talk about those. And then there's another, as I mentioned, way to target promoting cell death. And we found a trial for her in California where her daughter lived, that uses a drug called ABT199, which promotes cell death. And very preliminary data looks very active in CLL. 
So that's what she's going to go on. She's going to stay with her daughter and get that trial out in California. Now, these other agents, the Ibrutinib and Cal 101, I know they're oral and seems like, from what I've heard, not very toxic. Is that the case? And what do we know about this ABT-199? ABT-199 is also oral. We know less about that because it's earlier in clinical development, but the other two, the B-cell receptor signaling pathway inhibitors, do seem quite well tolerated. They are oral, so there are some GI effects, and it does affect some normal blood counts. And so there are some toxicities, and I'm sure we'll see more as we use them more. We'll also see more as we try to combine them with chemotherapy. So they're not totally non-toxic, but for a patient taking an oral agent as opposed to getting two days of bendamustine or three to five days of fludarabine every four weeks for six months, it's an attractive option. So another oral agent that actually is available, being used a lot in myeloma, you mentioned before lenalidomide, the IMID immune modulatory agent. What do we know about that? And also the so-called R-squared regimen with lenalidomide and rituximab. Yeah, so lenalidomide, you know, if you think about myeloma as a mature B-cell malignancy, it's not surprising that many of the agents that work in myeloma also work in at least low-grade or indolent lymphomas in CLL. So bortezomib, lenalidomide, active drugs in myeloma also have activity in lymphoma. So lenalidomide is very active. It's not approved for use in these diseases, so occasionally it's difficult to get it paid for. There are some copay problems because it's oral and not covered always by insurance, so sometimes that's an issue, but very active and now being used more and more in second and third line rather than fifth and sixth line, and now even a number of studies looking at it as initial therapy. So another drug that we know a lot about, well-tolerated and very active. And then when you combine it with rituximab, the results really seem as if there's a true synergy between the two drugs, and there are biological reasons why that makes sense. So this R-squared was a very active combination being studied, again, as relapsed and frontline, both CLL, low-grade lymphoma, mantle cell lymphoma. And we may talk about this a little later, but maintenance strategies using it as post-chemotherapy regimens are also being investigated. So lenalidomide with or without rituximab is also a reasonable strategy for CLL. Now, You have to be a little careful with lenalidomide and CLL because there is this phenomenon called tumor flare. We saw it first in lymph nodes rising, but you can get into trouble with lenalidomide with things getting worse over the first week or so before they get better. And with CLL, it was quite prominent. So when you start with lenalidomide and CLL, you have to start very low, maybe 2.5 or 5 milligrams at the most before you escalate the dose. So these diseases are much more sensitive than myeloma, so we would not start with, say, 25 milligrams like we would with myeloma. I always love to ask the myeloma investigators how they think lenalidomide works, and I'm going to ask you how you think it works, particularly in terms of lymphoma, and for that matter, how you think rituximab works and why maybe the two of them together are synergistic. I think we have a pretty good idea how rituximab works. There are several mechanisms, direct cell death, when it binds to CD20. That's probably the least important, but it does occur. It can activate complement, which is probably more active in the CLL patients where it's floating around in the bloodstream. And it can activate killer cells, so antibody-dependent cytotoxic cells, or ADCC, through natural killer cells, drawing them to the lymphoma or the CLL cells and killing them. It is a monoclonal antibody, and of course, everybody's heard a lot about trastuzumab monoclonal antibody in there in breast cancer. People also bring up this ADCC thing, which is an immune issue, 
and then you have an IMID, immune modulator. Does that make sense? Exactly. So the IMIDs do a number of things, but they seem to act by activating ADCC. So that's why I said there is rationale for the synergy. They also, at least in some settings, increase the density of CD20 on the surface of the B cell. And so that might enhance the binding of CD20 antibody and then have more targets for the ADCC. So there's this multifocal mechanism where ADCC may be activated by the IMID, CD20 is increased, and that combination will increase the killing. So I think it's an exciting combination that has some science behind it. So just to slip back again to endolymphomas, one of the strategies you see a lot of there, even up front in some patients, is using rituximab alone, no chemo. Is that ever done in CLL or in a patient like this? Even though rituximab is only approved in CLL in combination with chemotherapy, if you do surveys, many people do use single-agent rituximab for CLL, and it is active, and I've done it myself in patients, especially the slower-growing patients who have had the disease for years might need some treatment where you don't lose anything. If they respond, great. If they don't, you really haven't lost a whole lot. I would be a little leery about starting it in someone with a high white count such as this because of the concern of infusion reactions, but I wouldn't rule it out. So even though there's not a lot of data for it, people certainly do it and it has activity and you haven't really burned any bridges, so you could come back with you know, bendamustine rituximab or fludarabine rituximab if rituximab as a single agent was not adequate. So one final thing I want to ask you about, and then maybe we can chat a little bit about mantle cell, is a strategy that's used a lot more in follicular lymphoma, but I'm just curious in general what your thoughts are about it in patients, which is radioimmune therapy. In what kind of situations do you use it? Would you ever consider it in a patient like this? So radioimmunotherapy, I think, is an excellent treatment. It's well-tolerated, has some cytopenias, which last, you know, four to eight weeks after the treatment. The problem is that to qualify for radioimmunotherapy, because as the radioactive antibody goes through the body, it latches on to the cells, it hasn't really been used in CLL because the whole idea is that you're selecting the target and targeting the radiotherapy to the lymph node, whereas here you'd be radiating the whole body as the cell circulated. So in CLL, it's really not an issue. I guess you could think about doing it in CLL post-treatment where you've reduced the tumor burden and might reduce or kill residual cells. The general accepted guidelines for use of radioimmunotherapy is that the bone marrow has to be less than 25% involved by the lymphoma. So that's often a problem with CLL or some of the more advanced lymphomas. And platelets have to be over 100,000. So you have to pick your patients properly And CLL is not usually a case, but in follicular lymphoma, absolutely second line or later, I am always thinking about radioimmunotherapy. And what exactly is it? It's simply a radioactive form of an antibody. So if you put in rituximab, it circulates through the body, latches onto the B cells, and then we require those mechanisms such as ADCC or complement to kill the cell. So any cell that doesn't bind CD20 is going to escape. By putting the radioactive tag on it, you latch onto the B cells, and now any B cells within a few millimeters of that cell are going to get radiated. So all it does is it'll kill the cell it attaches to, but also surrounding cells. And that gives you a higher response rate than you would get with rituximab alone. So essentially it's radio-labeled rituximab? Essentially. 
Okay, let's talk a little bit about mantle cell. First, before you even present this patient, how common is it? And who do you think is seeing these patients in the community, or are they mainly in academic centers? So mantle cell lymphoma, the general sense is that it's about 6% of lymphomas. So that puts about three or 4,000 cases a year in the United States. They generally get seen initially, as with any lymphoma out in the community, but because there's so much controversy and uncertainty, they do often get referred, I think more so than a follicular lymphoma patient would, to a center and they often will get several opinions trying to decide what the best treatment choice would be. So when he presented in 2007, you saw him? I did see him. Again, as a second opinion, he was diagnosed in a place about an hour away, and he was educated and did some homework and said he wanted to search around for his treatment options, so came to me. So he was 68. He'd been healthy up to that point? Yeah, at that time, he was actually about 63, healthy, active, working, just progressive fatigue, some left upper quadrant discomfort, had a quite massively enlarged spleen actually down into the left lower quadrant, and anemia, thrombocytopenia, did not have much in the way of lymph nodes and really no B symptoms. So he was feeling pretty well except for fatigue. And how has he worked up? So again, standard workup for this would be CT scan, chest, abdomen, pelvis, standard blood work, and a bone marrow biopsy. PET scan in mantle cell lymphoma is less well studied than it is in diffuse large B cell. Most people would get a PET scan, but the role of PET scans is still a little bit uncertain. So what did his workup show? So he had, as is often the case, a small component of mantle cells in the bone marrow, probably 5 or 10%. Most of his disease was in the spleen, and he had some small nodes scattered around in the abdomen. And how do you define what are mantle cells? How do you make the diagnosis? The biology is such that to make the diagnosis, you really want to have a specific translocation between chromosomes 11 and 14. And what that does is activate a gene called cyclin D1, which drives cells through the cell cycle. So for diagnostic purposes, we generally want to prove either they have this 11-14 translocation, which can be done by it's called fluorescent in situ hybridization, or FISH. Sometimes you can get it on the blood, certainly can do it on the bone marrow or lymph node biopsy. Or now you can do cyclin D1 staining by immunohistochemistry, so you can just ask the pathologist to do that, and that will confirm the diagnosis. So either one or both the immunohistochemistry or the FISH. And you get a big hint because when you do flow cytometry, they're monoclonal B cells. And they have what's called CD5, which is a protein on their surface, which is common in CLL. So if they're CD5 positive B cells, you narrow it down to CLL or mantle cell lymphoma. And then you can look at another stain called CD23, which can help differentiate CLL from mantle cell. So you have a pretty good idea on the flow cytometry, but you really want to do cyclin D1 staining to confirm it. So you made the diagnosis of mantle cell in this man. Is there the same issue in terms of treating or not treating mantle cell that you were talking about before with CLL and FL? Not to such a large extent. So mantle cell lymphoma, we used to tell people their average survival was three to five years. But again, it is incurable with standard therapy outside of an allogeneic transplant. So there are a percentage of patients, probably 10, maybe 15% of patients who do have an indolent presentation and they can be watched, so there's no law that says you have to start treatment right away. Generally, these patients come in, they've had a month or two by the time they've found the diagnosis, confirmed it, done some research, so you have a sense of whether they might be watched for another couple months and see what happens or not. If they have symptoms 
a lot of disease. Most patients are going to get treated initially, but it's not an emergency like diffuse large B cell where you, you know you really want to start as soon as possible. So it seems like this man was already not feeling so great. How big was this spleen when you actually examined him? How far down could you feel it? You could feel the edge all the way down to his pelvis, wow. basically. I've seen him go across the midline. His didn't quite do that, but it was among the larger ones I've seen. So in that situation, how do you think through treatment options? Now, he was in his early 60s. How did you think through it for him? And if he had been 75 or beyond, how would you be thinking through it? So the general approach is the young, healthy patient, and young is a difficult term, but certainly under 60, most people would think about the hyper-CVAD regimen, very intensive regimen, good results, but again, very toxic and not really one that we generally use over 60, certainly over 65. Certainly you have the 65-year-old marathon runner, you might do that. When you get over 70, you're sort of going into the more less intensive regimens, and one would think often about a bendamustine-based regimen at that point. And this middle ground is sort of the difficult one. So you could think, gee, is he a candidate for hyper-CVAD? No, maybe he's a candidate for less gentle. Or the other regimen, which appears active, would be R-CHOP followed by high-dose chemotherapy with autologous stem cell support. So you have a range of intensity, level of risk, and you sort of have to balance that with the age and comorbidities of the patient. So this 60 to 65 range, 60 to 70 range, is a difficult one, and there are many options, and that's why patients are often looking around to decide what's best for them. So what actually happened to him? So we discussed all of those things. He was certainly fit enough that hyper-CVAD was reasonable. Fortunately, we did have a trial open at that time, which used only the first part of hyper-CVAD, so-called Part A, or it's been called modified hyper-CVAD, but basically the intensified R-CHOP part of hyper-CVAD without the high-dose methotrexate, high-dose RFC. And then to that was added bortezomib, and then it was to be followed by rituximab maintenance on trial. And he liked the idea of a research study. He liked the idea of being a little more intensive than RCHOP, but less intensive than the full hyper-CVAD. So he elected to go on that trial. And what happened? He did really well. He tolerated it well. His spleen shrunk quite dramatically, not quite to normal after six cycles, but even though it was still somewhat enlarged, PET uptake was not there. So his bone marrow cleared, he was PET negative, and he was in a complete remission after six cycles of this treatment. At that point, per protocol, he would have been given rituximab maintenance, but for business reasons where it might have interfered with getting back to work, he elected not to go on the rituximab maintenance. Really amazing that his spleen shrunk like that. How long did it take, and what was it like as you examined him? It basically shrunk probably a few inches per cycle. You know, one cycle you'd have it, oh, it's now from the pelvis to it below the umbilicus, and then it'll be above and finally up to the ribs. And then on the scans, you could see that similar shrinkage. And I guess he could be aware of it himself. Absolutely. He could feel the less heaviness and discomfort, increased appetite, all those things as it was going on. Now, you mentioned rituximab maintenance, and we also refer to that in terms of follicular lymphoma. What do we know about rituximab maintenance with mantle cell? So the rituximab story in mantle cells is somewhat interesting in that rituximab chemotherapy was not that much better at all than chemotherapy alone. So it wasn't the magic drug it was in follicular lymphoma. So a lot of us thought that rituximab maintenance similarly would not be that active. And it was an active area of research, but clearly it was not a standard treatment. 
This ECOG study, we're awaiting the long-term results, but in the meantime, there was a European study looking at rituximab maintenance versus interferon maintenance that was presented, and rituximab maintenance in RCHOP responders significantly prolonged remission duration. So now people are beginning to think that rituximab maintenance may well be added to standard of care in mantle cell lymphoma. What do we know about complications from rituximab maintenance? Largely, rituximab maintenance is well tolerated. The concern is as you continue on it, you do start to see, as you keep the B cells suppressed, decrease in gamma globulins, decrease in your antibodies, and so increased risk of infections. And again, just like we talked about in CLL, these tend to be upper respiratory infections, sinusitis, things like that. So that's the main effect. There are some rare cases of cytopenias which aren't really fully understood, but the main concern is risk of infection going up as you stay on the maintenance. So he did well for a period of time, and what happened then? And then he came and he said, mm, I'm starting to feel that same discomfort in the left side, and yes, his spleen was larger, his counts were starting to go down, anemia and thrombocytopenia, and he again required therapy. So what was he treated with and what happened? So by now he's over 65. Again, in the mix here is always... He hadn't had high-dose chemo with a stem cell transplant, and that has been shown, at least in the frontline setting, to prolong remission. So we again discussed that one goal would be to shrink the disease and take him to transplant, but again, he was not interested in going that way. So bendamustine is a very active drug in mantle cell lymphoma, and he elected to be treated with bendamustine rituximab, and he's had six cycles of that with an excellent clinical response again. And what about our maintenance this time? Well, we discussed this again, and now having had it come back in three years instead of eight or ten years, he's now willing to go on rituximab maintenance, and so we have started rituximab maintenance in this patient. Now, looking forward in this man, you said you felt mantle cells not curable. What are some of the new agents you were talking about, new agents and CLL, new agents and new research approaches in mantle cell? And one I'll ask you about is really not new, but he actually got it, which is bortezomib. So bortezomib is approved in this country for relapsed mantle cell lymphoma. It is an active drug, a large study showing that. And certainly, since it's already you know, four years since he had it, and he didn't have a lot of it, that would be a drug that one would think about going back to at some point in the future. All of the drugs that we discussed in CLL also are active in mantle cell. So the same B-cell receptor signaling and pro-apoptotic agents are being studied. The mTOR inhibitors mammalian target of rapamycin, but it's a pathway that's further down from the B-cell receptor. Those drugs such as everolimus and temsorolimus, and they're approved for some other indications, but they also have activity. And so there are a number of biologically targeted agents in mantle cell lymphoma that are either on the market for other diseases or being intensively studied in mantle cell lymphoma and likely will be approved in the near future, we would hope. There's some interesting biology. I mentioned cyclin D1, so that would be required for the diagnosis of mantle cell lymphoma, so it seems like a logical target. And there are some inhibitors of cyclin pathways, one of which we participated in a phase one study of an oral agent that inhibits cyclin-dependent kinase, or CDK, and had some activity and might be combined with the drug, say, bortezomib. So I think targeting specific mantle cell lymphoma pathways might be even 
more effective and less toxic than targeting all B cells, but that remains to be seen. So let's finish out talking about one of the more common lymphomas, the fused large B cell, and maybe you can just briefly present your 60-year-old man. So this was a gentleman who presented with a mass growing in the left side of his neck. He was aware of it when he was shaving, grew over about a month's time, so not consistent with sort of an indolent picture where you might be aware of that for 6 to 12 months. He had a biopsy. It showed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. This was back about three years ago. And routine CT staging showed disease in the neck and the mediastinum. But on the PET scan, he did have disease below the diaphragm. His bone marrow was free of lymphoma. The proliferative index, or KI67, was 60%, which is pretty standard for diffuse large B-cell. We get nervous if it's up 90% or greater that it might be a more aggressive type of lymphoma. But that 60% is a number of cells turning over, dividing. Correct. So it's pretty active disease. Right. So in a low grade, you might get you know, 10 20%. In mantle cell, the average is about 20 to 30%. And diffuse large B-cell, 60 to 80% would be a reasonable range Again, we don't make treatment decisions based on that yet, but in mantle cell, for instance, KI-67 really is highly predictive of disease course. In diffuse large B cell, we just look for the very high proliferative ones where we start to think, gee, maybe this is one of those what we call MYC or MYC positive or Burkitt's-like lymphoma. So you saw him at diagnosis? I did not, actually. I saw him when he relapsed. What happened? How was he treated and what happened? So it was interesting. I guess about three years ago, there was a big push to do RCHOP every 14 days instead of every 21 days. So he got RCHOP on a 14-day schedule. I guess that's the dose-dense approach? Right. So the idea is you get the same dose every two weeks. You've increased the dose density by 33%. And you can do that if you use growth factors and infectious prophylaxis and things like that. And so the sense was, it's got to be better because more is always better. There are two randomized trials now which show that it's not worse, but it's not really better. And it is a little more toxic, a little more complicated to give. So most of us have gone back to the RCHOP21 in this country. Now, in Europe, they still believe RCHOP14 is better. And nurses in this country will know that dose-dense adjuvant chemotherapy for breast cancer very commonly utilized, again, every 14 days. So he got this dose-dense RCHOP, and then what happened? And he went into a complete remission. PET was negative. But unfortunately, a little over a year later, disease recurred in the neck again. When you look back at his case, what would you have said initially in terms of his chance of cure with this treatment? So when you look at him by the International Prognostic Index, he was a low risk. So he only had one poor risk factor, which was that he was stage 3 disease. His LDH was normal. He had a good performance status. He was at that point under 60. So the odds were that he had a good chance of being cured with the RCHOP. In fact, he had the germinal center phenotype, which is diffuse large B-cell lymphoma actually is in at least two diseases, a germinal center type and an activated B-cell type, and the germinal center type tends to do better. So he didn't have any reason to think that he wasn't in the 80% or more chance of getting cured. But when it comes down to it, it's not 100%, so there's always some people in that favorable group who unfortunately do relapse. And at what point did you see him? So I saw him after he had relapsed. His physician called me. I suggested that they re-biopsy it to make sure that this was indeed the same histology because it was a little odd that he relapsed at this point, but not unheard of. And the biopsy did confirm that this was the same diffuse large B cell. And then I saw him to discuss treatment approaches at that point. 
And maybe you can just bring us up to date on what happened. So as a pretty standard approach to relapse diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is salvage therapy or second-line therapy with rituximab. And the most common combination we use is ice, ifosamide, carboplatinum, and etoposide with a goal towards getting to an autologous stem cell transplant or high-dose chemotherapy with autologous stem cell support as long as he responds to the initial therapy. And so he did. He had a very nice response to the RICE, went on to high-dose chemotherapy with stem cell support, and again, most people would quote him a 50-50 chance of being long-term remission with such therapy. He got through it without significant or unexpected toxicities. Unfortunately, nine months later, his disease recurred again. Then what? So now we're into a realm where there really is no standard therapy. So patients who are not candidates for a stem cell transplant by age or other organ dysfunction, or who have relapsed after having such an approach, there really is no approved therapy in this country and no standard approach. One can think about an allogeneic transplant, but the results of that are not spectacular, but it is the one potentially curative option left. Everything after that would be considered investigational. So we are participating in trials, looking at patients in this group to see if we can identify new treatments. And what kind of treatment did he receive? We talked about several possibilities, but he ended up going on a clinical trial which randomizes patients. Since there is no standard, we elected a comparator arm of gemcitabine with rituximab because it's one of the agents that a lot of people use in the setting, compared to a new drug called pixantrone along with rituximab. And this is a randomized phase three trial. To keep disclosure clear, I actually am the principal investigator on this international phase three trial. But this drug is an anthracycline-like agent, but it has some differences that probably make it have a different mechanism of action than doxorubicin. It was active in a small study. It actually was a randomized study, but a small number of patients. And in fact, it has been recommended for approval in Europe in this setting of relapsed aggressive lymphomas. But in this country, we're doing this study to try to confirm its activity in the setting. He is responding to the treatment, and he does not have a sibling donor, but we are considering him for a matched unrelated donor transplant. A search is underway for a potential donor. As we continue with this special issue focusing on non-Hodgkin lymphoma and chronic lymphocytic leukemia, I met with Dr. Stephen Horwitz to talk about an uncommon but very important type of lymphoma, so-called T-cell lymphoma. And to better understand how these cancers are managed, I asked Dr. Horwitz to discuss patients from his practice, and he began by commenting on a 69-year-old woman. So this was a very nice woman who had been given this diagnosis of angiomyoblastic T-cell lymphoma. She was treated at one of the other hospitals in New York and they gave her EPOC chemotherapy with curative intent for six cycles, and she had a great response to that. Some side effects, you know, she got that treatment in her late 60s, so it did cause quite a bit of fatigue and hair loss, and I think was very optimistic that she would be fine, but then she had new scans which showed new adenopathy, biopsy showed recurrent angiomyoblastic T-cell lymphoma. So, of course, at that point, she was upset, certainly very fearful, I think, probably had thought a lot at that point that could this be the end of her life or approaching the end of her life. But it was sort of under that situation that she came to see us looking for sort of what we would recommend at that point. 
you know, maybe taking a step back, I'm curious what you would say to a patient like this. And I don't know, you know, this lady's particular interest in information, but how would you explain to a patient basically what angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma is and generally what T-cell lymphoma is? Mm -hmm. Sure. She was pretty high level and she and her husband both had a lot of questions and read a lot. But in general, you know, the kinds of things I would explain is that lymphomas are cancers of a kind of white blood cell called a lymphocyte. And there are over 60 different kinds of lymphoma. And there's a group of lymphomas that start from a normal lymphocyte called a T-cell. They're called T-cells because they mature in the thymus, but that doesn't really have to do with what the lymphoma is. But by and large, that group, of which angioimmunoblastic is probably the second or third most common kind, behave as what we think of as aggressive lymphomas. And what we mean by that is that they tend to grow over weeks or months. They tend to cause symptoms and make you sick. And they're often difficult to control with milder therapies like indolent lymphomas, though that's not always the case with angioimmunoblastic. But we usually treat with curative intent. So that means combinations, four and five drug chemotherapy combinations, with really the intent to get rid of this permanently. Sometimes we're able to achieve that, but often even after that chemotherapy, the lymphomas do return and need other therapy. But just to put in perspective, because you talked about so-called indolent lymphomas, and that's really, I guess, the majority of lymphomas are so-called B-cell lymphomas. What's the difference between B and T-cell? And particularly, you know, I guess with the B-cells, you've got the option of something like rituximab. Right. Yeah, I think there's a number of differences. I think, you know, the fundamental difference is they're just from a different cell of origin. But the clinical differences are the systemic T-cell lymphomas tend to behave more like aggressive B-cell lymphomas in the sense that they grow relatively quickly. Where they differ from the aggressive B-cell lymphomas like diffuse large B-cell is that they often involve extranodal sites. They're much less common, so sometimes there's a longer lead time in terms of diagnosis. People often have a lot of systemic symptoms, though that can be the case with B-cell lymphomas. And the therapies, largely because we don't have a rituximab, the therapies are not quite as advanced. That's partly because Though it's changing, that therapies haven't been developed as much, it's partly because they're more rare. So a lot of the older studies include primarily B-cell lymphomas. So it's not as mature of a field in terms of our understanding. We don't have large randomized studies. And for whatever reason, either the inherent nature of the disease or the lack of great therapies we have, the prognosis is not as good. So there is a cure rate with chemotherapy regimens like CHOP lower than it is for B-cell lymphomas. The relapse rates are higher. Usually with patients, you know, the patients don't have a perspective of what a B-cell lymphoma is. So if they're coming into a cold, we don't always go into all that. But certainly when we talk to nurses and doctors, it's sort of, in a very simplistic way, kind of like a bad diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, less good therapies, less good results with therapies, but the fundamental approach would be similar in terms of trying to cure them. Now, at the point you saw this lady now with progressive disease, at that point, how much of a problem was the lymphoma in terms of symptoms and how much was it a diagnosis? At diagnosis, she was actually quite ill. She had multiple lymph nodes. She had a lot of fevers and had a lot of B symptoms at that time, which is fairly common with angioimmunoblastic. At recurrence, she was actually feeling reasonably well. I think she just had a couple of lymph nodes in the neck. So because she was being followed, the recurrence was picked up fairly early, and we had time to do a biopsy and sort that out. And she was relatively asymptomatic at that time. You mentioned she got EPOC chemotherapy. Maybe you can talk about what that is and how she reacted to it or what kind of side effects she had with it and how it affected her lymphoma symptoms. Yeah, so EPOC is a combination chemotherapy. The letters stand for etoposide prednisone. 
in cysteine cyclophosphamide, and the H is doxorubicin or hydroxydoxorubicin. So similar drugs to CHOP plus atopicide. EPOC is a specific regimen that's really sort of been pioneered at the NCI as an infusional chemotherapy regimen. So rather than getting IV bolus drugs all on one day, it's given over a four to five day infusion, really four 24 hour days by continuous infusion. So when people get it, they either get it in the hospital or they get it through a pump. So it's intensive combination chemotherapy. It has all the side effects of other chemotherapies. There can be some nausea, there can be hair loss, there certainly can be some cumulative fatigue, there can be some neuropathy. But it looks like when you give it as this slow infusion that the tolerance is a little better than when you give all those drugs on a single day or if you do CHOP plus atopicide, which is just over a couple days. So the neuropathy tends to be a little less. It looks like it can be safer for people with liver or kidney dysfunction. It's probably safer for people with low ejection fraction And it's sort of a way, while we don't use a ton of EPOC for T-cell lymphomas, it's sort of a way in a person with borderline tolerance of getting more intensive chemotherapy in, in a way that you hope would be better tolerated than sort of giving it in bolus fashion. How did she actually do with the treatment and how did it affect her tumor-related symptoms? She had a great response really quickly. Not surprising, with angiomyoblastic, people usually have initial response, and even just with prednisone alone, the symptoms often go away quickly. The issue with that disease is much more durability of remission than getting people into remission. So she had a pretty good response. She did have some cumulative fatigue, a little bit of neuropathy, but all in all, I think, tolerated the treatment pretty well. Now, again, that was given in an outside hospital, so I didn't see her until some months after that. But certainly nothing in her treatment that made us think we couldn't go back to aggressive therapy if that's what we wanted to do. And while she wasn't looking forward to aggressive therapy, it wasn't so bad for her that she felt she couldn't go through that again. So you mentioned that angioimmunoblastic is only one form of T-cell lymphoma. What are the other common forms and how are they separated out clinically? The other most common of the systemic T-cell lymphomas, the most common subtype is something called peripheral T-cell lymphoma, not otherwise specified which is a cancer of mature T-cells that doesn't have one of these other names. And then there's anaplastic large cell lymphoma. There's a couple of forms of that. There's two systemic forms. One, which tends to occur more often in younger people, expresses a protein called ALK1. So that's called ALK-positive anaplastic large cell lymphoma. And then another systemic form that doesn't express that protein. And right now that's called ALK-negative anaplastic large cell lymphoma. There's also a skin-only or cutaneous version of that disease, which is more indolent. The anaplastic large cell lymphomas tend to show up either in nodal sites. There's sometimes skin involvement also. They tend to have usually fairly large lymph node or bulkier lymph nodes. The differences are mostly histologic, meaning those are large CD30 positive cells that have certain features. If you look at peripheral T-cell lymphoma unspecified and angioaminoblastic and the, the systemic anaplastic large cell lymphomas, those will probably make up about 75% of the systemic T-cell lymphomas that we would see in the United States in terms of incidence. You know, it's funny when I think about it. Here's a disease that's pretty complicated, but also extremely uncommon. So, you know, I think as far as I can tell, there's like five people in the United States that can actually explain it in a way that I can understand it. You're one of them, which is why you're here today. But (laughs) anyhow, so I want to talk about some of the other cases you have. But just to summarize, when she came back to you in this situation now, as you say, very disappointed that the tumors come back, bad disease. What were you thinking in terms of options in this kind of situation? When it comes back after initial chemotherapy, the one treatment that has sort of a track record of curing people, you know, getting rid of it forever, is allogeneic bone marrow transplant. So when we see people at relapse, our experience has been that autotransplant at relapse has not been that effective. So usually if it's relapse disease, 
either from a previous auto transplant or they never got an auto, we're often thinking about aloe or not. So she sort of sits right on the borderline of age in terms of her mentality of what she wanted to go through, whether we would take sort of an aggressive approach, give combination chemotherapy and try to move directly to an aloe transplant and all that entails, or try, there's a number of newer single agents and there's some older single agents which can be used in a palliative fashion, which is not how we usually treat aggressive lymphomas, but particularly with angioimmunoblastic, we've had some success controlling the disease, sometimes for multiple years, and then getting into a conversation with her at 69, almost 70, best case scenario, we control this for a couple of years with low toxicity. Is that really what we want to do? Or do we really want to try for curative intent, knowing that the risk of allotransplant and what would be a 70-year-old by the time she got into remission, you know, are fairly high. It's at that point almost a very personal decision in terms of how someone views their situation and views their life and things like that. This is such a provocative situation. I'm just sort of sitting here thinking to myself, kind of wondering what this lady decided to do. In terms of the information that you gave her, what did you tell her the chance was she could be cured with an allogeneic transplant? It was tough with her because our data and the data in the literature with aloe for T-cell lymphomas relapse is quite good, you know, in the sense that it's about 60% of patients are long-term in remission. However, in the patients we've done at Memorial, which is about 35 patients or so, the median age was 37. So how much that applies to someone like this is really unclear. So we had a long conversation with her and said, you know, we know in principle that that could cure you. But the likelihood that it would cure you and the likelihood that you would have a toxicity that would make you wish you hadn't done it is really, it's hard for us to say. So we involved the transplant doctors with her. She was a very healthy 69-year-old. So, you know, we sort of had a lot of back and forth and thinking about that. So just to pull that out a little bit more, can you explain kind of what an allogeneic transplant is, what the major complications are, and the bottom line when you sat down and talked to her in terms of what the chances were that she'd either have a very serious complication or even die from this? Right. So an allotransplant is basically, I mean, historically, it was usually strong chemotherapy or radiation to wipe out whatever residual cancer was left in the body, whatever lymphoma was there. The side effect of that very intensive treatment would be to wipe out your normal marrow, and then you would replace that with stem cells or bone marrow from a sibling or an unrelated person who matched. As allotransplants have been extended in terms of doing them to older and older people, the technique more commonly done, particularly with older people, is what's called a, a reduced intensity, what used to be called a mini-transplant. But really, rather than giving very intensive therapy to wipe out the lymphoma, you're basically giving immunosuppressive therapy, which could be low-dose chemotherapy, low-dose radiation, to suppress the immune system to allow donor stem cells to get in and grow. And then you're really relying on the immune effects or what we call a graft-versus-lymphoma effect. So those new immune cells growing up in the body can then fight off the lymphoma. And we think probably when those new immune cells grow, they're probably particularly good at fighting off T cells because the two immune systems don't coexist. So if you can get that new immune system in safely, and that's sort of the catch, then there's a reasonable chance that the lymphoma, whatever minimal disease is left, will be eradicated and not come back. So taking all these things into consideration, what kind of, I don't know if she asked for numbers like these or you gave her numbers, but what did you estimate to be her risk of having a major problem with this? 
in consultation with the transplant doctors looking at her age, which was her main risk, her other comorbidities were quite low, we put it sort of in the 15 to 20% range. The main risk would either be severe infection while your immune system was so suppressed or graft-versus-host disease, meaning the new immune system would cause significant problems that can attack the skin, the GI tract. That can sometimes be fatal. It can sometimes just really make you very miserable. And then there's also a chance that the transplant doesn't work, meaning that in spite of going through all this, the lymphoma could still come back. And I think you said that at that point she was relatively asymptomatic from the disease. So mm-hmm. I guess she could be, even if it's 15%, looking at the possibility she might get sick and never feel good again. Right. You do run the risk that in trying to help her, you could shorten her life, actually. Particularly with angiomyoblastic T-cell lymphoma, there is some variability in terms of behavior. And while hers was, she was quite sick at the beginning, there are patients who have a more indolent form of that. And sometimes it's hard to tell how easily that disease would be controlled with mild therapies. So what did this lady decide to do? We split the difference and we hedged a little bit. What we initially tried was an investigational therapy with a histone deacetylase inhibitor. She was very reluctant to undergo the risk of the transplant. She actually didn't respond to that, progressed a little, and then we tried a mild oral chemotherapy, which we'll use a lot for angiomyoblastic, low doses of oral cyclophosphamide and atopicide and prednisone given sort of on a seven-day-on, two- to three-week-off cycle. And, and we do have some patients who've had their disease controlled for multiple years on that. She initially responded very well to that, but not completely. So about three to four months down the road, we sort of had this conversation, which is, you're doing well on this, but you're not in complete remission. Therefore, our best guess is that this may not be one of these people who would continue on this medicine for years and years. You're approaching 70, and it's sort of at that point, we decided to go ahead with the aloe transplant. And you try not to put the decision too much on the patient, but this was largely her decision and went forward. And actually, she's been doing okay with that. How long has it been since the transplant? She's now, it was probably coming up on a year. I think it was November last year that she had the aloe, and she's been okay. Had a little bit of graft-versus-host disease, but nothing too severe. And what is the status of the tumor? Tumor's in remission. When we follow them with PET scans, you'll occasionally get some small pet avid adenopathy, but in her, that's not been lymphoma. So she's doing okay. Our curves post-aloe look like for the T-cell lymphomas that if you're in remission at a year, I think we've just had one patient who had a late relapse. Almost everybody else, things either happen or don't within the first year with the disease coming back. So let's talk about new things in T-cell lymphoma, and particularly new agents. And you referred to the fact that there are a couple of them that are out there. And you mentioned an HDAC inhibitor that you already gave to her, but maybe you can talk a little about romodepsin, about pralotrexate, and also about brentuximavidotin. Sure. You know, the two approved agents right now for T-cell lymphomas broadly are romodepsin, which is a histone deacetylase inhibitor, and pralotrexate. Pralotrexate was actually first approved. That's an antifolate. They're both given IV. And what's happened with relapsed T-cell lymphomas is that in the past, we would just borrow treatments from B-cell lymphomas. And now more and more, we're trying to focus studies looking at agents specifically active in these diseases. As we've identified some of those agents, it's also a little bit like where this woman was. It's shifted the paradigm a little bit, meaning in, in the past, I think we would give combination chemotherapy try to move everyone closer to a transplant. As we've been studying people with single-agent treatments, we see that there's a group of people who sort of can have their remissions kind of maintained on single-agent, and you're often doing more of a maintenance or palliative approach, but occasionally that you can really stretch that out over some years. So it's added another way of thinking about treating these diseases. 
pralotrexate, it's given as an IV push. It's an antifolate. The main side effect that we've seen with pralotrexate in the early studies and even in clinical use has been mucositis or specifically mouth sores. They don't seem to get mucositis throughout the GI tract, but really just in the mouth. And that's really been the hardest thing for people to stay on drug long-term. If patients don't get mucositis, there's a very little bit of nausea, not very much. There is some fatigue. There's a little bit of thrombocytopenia, but really the main side effect that we've seen has been mucositis if people get it bad. And then if they have that, we do a lot of mouth care. Probably the most effective thing we have right now is skipping a dose. Pralotrexate is usually given weekly for three out of four or six out of seven weeks. So usually if you skip a dose, things will heal and you can dose reduce a little. There's been some anecdotal evidence of using leucovorin to try to reverse or help the mouth sores heal better. I'd say right now, if someone's responding well but having bad mucositis, that's something reasonable to try. We haven't yet been able to understand or done studies to sort out that if you give the leucovorin, do you blunt the efficacy because it's a weekly treatment, so it's not like you get the leucovorin and then you're off treatment for multiple weeks. You theoretically would get a dose again the following week. But that's been a pretty effective agent. The response rate in the registrational studies was just about 30%, and of the responders, they had disease control for about 10 months or so. So it can be used in a maintenance fashion. There's been some patients with very refractory disease who've been able to use that as a bridge to get to a transplant or get to curative therapy. So certainly useful. We've been looking at ways of trying to combine that or trying to move it earlier in therapy. So far, that's still sort of a research question. When we tried to combine it with gemcitabine, which preclinically looked quite synergistic for activity, we hit really high levels of hematologic toxicity. So that's not something that we've been doing in the clinic, but we're looking at other ways to incorporate it. Romadep's in a very similar story, sort of anecdotal evidence in T-cell lymphoma. This is an IV histone deacetylase inhibitor. Based on some anecdotal evidence, there were larger studies done in both cutaneous and systemic T-cell lymphomas. And in both of those diseases, there's you know 25 to 35% response rate. And again, like pralotrexate, there doesn't seem to be cumulative toxicity, so you can use it as a continuous or maintenance approach. And, and there's a number of patients who've been able to be on romadepsin for multiple years with disease control. From a quality of life point of view, anything that you see with patients on the drug? With romadepsin, you know, there are people who really feel pretty good on it, but the main side effects of the HDAC inhibitors, including this one, are fatigue, sometimes change in taste, nausea, there can be some vomiting. So it's not uncommon that if you get your treatment on a Monday for Monday or Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you feel pretty crummy. I do have some patients who work who are on it, and sometimes they'll take a few days off work or they'll try to get treated at the end of the week so it hits the weekend. And not so much that they're bedbound, but they really don't feel like doing much. And then typically by day four, five, six, seven, something like that, they're usually feeling better. But if you're going to use it as a maintenance or continuous treatment, you are probably giving up how you feel. Well, one day a week is a four-hour infusion, so that's most of whatever day you get the treatment. And then there's often a couple of days where you do feel fatigued or sort of generally unwell. That being said, it doesn't have a lot of sort of highly dangerous side effects, meaning there doesn't seem to be a high risk of infection. It's not particularly immunosuppressive. At least it doesn't cause a lot of neutropenia and things like that. So in that sense, it looks like it's probably safe for long-term use. But while both of these drugs can work very well for people, neither of them is a perfect solution in the sense that people take them really without any side effects. Can you talk a little bit about the presumed mechanism of anti-tumor action of histone deacetylase inhibitors and antifolates? How do they actually work? I think the antifolates are probably a little more clear-cut that we think, at least by inhibiting folate metabolism, you know, the cells rely on that very strongly to survive the tumor cells. 
pralitrexate is a very good substrate for something called the reduced folate carrier 1 or RFC1. And we know RFC1 is overexpressed on a lot of tumor cells and some fetal tissue. So the thought there is that the tumor cells get a much higher concentration of pralitrexate delivered intracellularly, that the pralitrexate, because it's a good substrate for something called polyglutamylation, is retained inside the cell, the tumor cells at a higher level, and therefore you get sort of this therapeutic differential where the tumor cells are more affected than the normal cells. And there's been some speculation that this works by a different mechanism than methotrexate. There might be some different off-target effects. It's not really been that well understood, and probably the mechanism is largely straight antifolate, or at least that's a main part of it. The histone deacetylase inhibitors, I'm starting to see them now called deacetylase inhibitors. People are dropping the histone because they're not just histone deacetylase inhibitors. They affect acetylation of a number of proteins. Those, it's a little less clear what the main mechanism of action is. You know, they cause a variety of changes within the cell. They affect a lot of gene expression. They can have some effects on the immune system. They can have effects on blood vessel formation. I think in the T-cell lymphomas, the best evidence we have is that they probably induce apoptosis. These are from sort of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma cell lines, and that's probably their dominant effect is pro-apoptotic. But the range of effects are very wide. I'm sure there's people who can explain this better, answer much more cogently than me, but I don't think in the T-cell lymphomas and other diseases we know a dominant mechanism of action. So I also wanted to get your take on what I think is one of the most exciting drugs in oncology and types of drugs, so-called antibody drug conjugate on our breast cancer series for nurses. We talked about TDM1, and there is an agent now, lymphomas, particularly Hodgkin lymphoma, but also in some T-cell lymphomas, Brentexamab bedotin. What is it? And what do we know about it, in term, particularly in terms of T-cell lymphoma? Right, yeah. Brentuximab vedotin, what used to be called SGN35, it is, I agree with you, it's one of the more exciting drugs. So this is an antibody drug conjugate. It's an antibody to CD30. So CD30 is a marker that's on activated T-cells. It's also strongly uniformly expressed on anaplastic large-cell lymphoma. It's almost always strongly expressed on the Reed-Sternberg cells of Hodgkin lymphoma. And then it's kind of variably expressed at different levels on a number of other lymphomas, including if you look at all the T-cell lymphomas, you see a little bit of CD30 expression here and there. I was going to ask you, did you test for CD30 in your lady with angioaminoblastica? Has it ever seen there? We have a study now looking at that. When we first started treating her at relapse, we didn't yet have that study, so we didn't look in her. But we have been looking, and we've actually been finding angioaminoblastic a fair amount when we've been looking at the brentuximabidotin and other T-cell lymphomas, initially it was thought that we sort of needed a threshold effect, but the study's sort of been modified to sort of say any CD30 expression. And usually if you get your pathologist to look really hard, they can find a couple of cells with CD30 expression. And in those studies, we've seen, it's interesting, where in the anaplastic large cell lymphoma, where there are always strong CD30 expressors, the response rate in the phase two study was almost 90%, it was 86%. In these other lymphomas, we have great responses in some people at very low levels, less than 5% CD30. And we have patients who are 70 or 80% CD30 who don't respond. And the responses have been a little bit all over the map. Some of that data has been presented in both systemic lymphomas as well as some cutaneous lymphomas. So it doesn't right now look like there's a cutoff or a true correlation between the strengths of CD30 expression and whether or not you might respond to that drug. Now, these antibody drug conjugates are noteworthy because even though essentially they have a chemotherapeutic agent in it, it's just, I guess I've heard people say it's like a Trojan horse, the way it's delivered to tumor cells, but people don't usually have chemotherapy-associated side effects. What's seen with this bevidotin? The chemotherapy with rentuximab vidotin is orostatin, which is a tubulin inhibitor. 
So the main side effect that's been seen has been related to that, which is neuropathy, so a peripheral sensory neuropathy seen in about half of patients who get the drug. And that's probably a side effect of that, probably some free drug coming out, either getting outside the cell or being released when the drug is given IV. There is a little bit of neutropenia. The rates are low, but there are patients who clearly get neutropenic. There's a little bit of hair loss. So there are some mild effects of chemotherapy. Most patients don't have those, so we think the targeting is probably pretty good. But you do see a little bit of that. Interesting, as we've been studying and looking at different situations where the neuropathy was a common but not a huge complaint in the patients with anaplastic large cell lymphoma and Hodgkin lymphoma who received brentuximab and in the early studies, as we've been giving it to other patients who are less pretreated or patients maybe with better immune systems in some of the cutaneous lymphoma patients, we're seeing some more problems with neuropathy. Either those patients haven't experienced as much chemotherapy, so they're noticing it more acutely, or there may be something about if patients get it with a more intact or functional immune system that you do see a little more of that side effect. We've seen a little more rash and things like that. Though overall, compared to combination chemotherapy, you know, the tolerance is quite good. So I want to flip over to the other side of T-cell lymphoma in terms of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. And you have a, this 81-year-old man with mycosis fungoides. But before we get to his case, any other new agents? You know, these three kind of stick out. You have the two approved agents. You have a real exciting agent. It has a lot of activity. Anything else kind of in that category in T-cell lymphoma that you see coming down the line? Maybe not immediately. I mean, the brentuximab is approved for anaplastic large cell lymphoma and Hodgkin's. So we'll probably get more data on that soon. So since that's approved agent, as we get more data in other lymphomas, that might become more widely available. Belinistat, which is another histone deacetylase inhibitor, has finished a phase two study. So we're sort of waiting on the data for that to see whether that might be the fourth agent approved. There was some interesting data from one phase two study on bendamustine. It was a study out of Belgium and France where, you know, bendamustine, most oncologists are pretty comfortable with. There was a pretty high response rate, about a 50% response rate in T-cell lymphoma, though the responses were quite short, only about a three and a half month duration. So it looks like that's an active agent, maybe needs to be combined or used in a different strategy to try to get a little more durability. Other than that, there's a couple of other things that are a little earlier in development, something called KW0761, which is an antibody against CCR4, which is expressed on a lot of T-cell lymphomas. That's being looked at in HTLV1-associated lymphomas, as well as mycosis fungoides, and some studies are starting in other peripheral T-cell lymphomas. That drug's approved in Japan for HTLV1-associated lymphomas, so as we get more experience with that in the U.S., I think we'll see whether that becomes more useful And then other things like PI3 kinase inhibitors, the BTK inhibitor used for B-cell lymphomas may have a rationale in some T-cell lymphomas. Those sort of tyrosine kinase and small molecule inhibitors, those studies in T-cell lymphoma are very, very early. So we have some enthusiasm, but those are sort of in the phase one and in the idea stage. I want to go into this man, but you know, now that I think about it, I'm just kind of curious. Has lenalidomide been studied in T-cell lymphoma? There's one study of lenalidomide. It was a study out of Canada. They treated about 30 patients it was about half of the planned accrual, so it, it didn't really accrue. And they had a response rate of about 25-30%, similar to some of the other approved drugs. So we think that there's probably some activity there. That study's probably too small to be confident in it. There was another study in cutaneous T-cell lymphoma that didn't show a lot of activity. I think the jury's still out, but there's probably some rationale. We think that that might be a good agent to combine with some of these new agents, particularly if some of the antibodies or the immune-directed therapies look promising, that lenalidomide with at least a little bit of activity in T-cell lymphoma might you know, have a strong rationale to study combinations. 
Lenalidomide is an immune modulatory agent, whatever that means. But, you know, they've seen encouraging results with antibodies, as you mentioned. Rituximab, lenalidomide, that seems to be getting some traction in terms of indolent lymphoma. And then actually, even in myeloma, they've been looking at elituzumab and lenalidomide. But anyhow, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I think that's a real good rationale. The problem right now in T-cell lymphoma is the only sort of approved antibody we have is alemtuzumab, which is pretty broadly immunosuppression. It's kind of coming off the market. So I think there's less enthusiasm about adding that drug in. But if the KWO761, the CCR4 antibody or other immune-directed therapies, there's a strong rationale for that. Let's talk about your 81-year-old man. How did he first present? So this is a guy that I've been taking care of for about four or five years now. So he initially presented with a few sort of red patches in typical areas, kind of on the hips, lower back, inner arms, as is common, thought it was dry skin for a while, was treated with topical steroids as maybe being eczema. But then they progressed and some thicker lesions developed to more of a true plaque. So a lesion that was slightly raised, but not very large. And at that point, he saw a dermatologist who did a biopsy, who diagnosed him with mycosis fungoides. At diagnosis, he's what we call stage 1B, which just means that more than 10% of his skin is involved with relatively flat lesions like patches or plaques. Can you kind of take a step back and, again, you know, talk about how you discuss with patients, and maybe this patient in particular, I don't know how interested he was in this, in terms of what exactly mycosis fungoides is? He's a little bit disengaged from, you know, he kind of has, is preoccupied with other things, so he's not a guy who asks a lot of questions. But in general, you know, we talk about lymphomas, we sort of put it in the framework of aggressive and indolent lymphomas. And where an aggressive lymphoma, like we talked about before, is something that usually grows quickly, becomes life-threatening. We usually treat intensively with sort of curative intent or the goal to eradicate the disease. Mycosis fungoides is really, for most patients, a very chronic disease. So they often have stable or very slow-growing skin lesions. They might get more involved over time. But it's something where people with early stage disease would easily have a normal life expectancy. For patients with stage 1A disease, they have the same life expectancy as age match controls. And that means that basically the disease is chronic, they're on treatment on and off, but it rarely progresses to the point where they get a more life-threatening form of it, which would usually be multiple tumors on the skin or involvement of sites outside the skin like lymph nodes or organs. And most patients with therapy, and it's usually a mild therapy like skin-directed therapies, creams, phototherapy, can have their disease controlled often for many years and often, you know, for the rest of their life, particularly in a guy who's diagnosed in his late 70s, that the chance of controlling it through the rest of his natural life would be quite good. What kinds of specific symptoms do you see in the skin pruritus, a hemorrhage, what kinds of problems? Itching is by far the most common thing that people present with. And not everybody has itching, but the people who have itching, it can really be very severe. It's often what brings them to the doctor. They'll be scratching in their sleep, things like that. You know, they'll wake up with scratch marks that they're doing it even when they're asleep, and it can be quite bad. There's other patients who don't have much itching. Probably the other thing that brings people to attention initially is the lesions don't look good, so it's a rash that stays forever. Sometimes the skin can be wrinkly or slightly thickened or their partner, someone points it out to them, and that's what brings them to the doctor. These things tend to present non-sun-exposed areas, so what we call the bathing trunk area, the inner upper arm. So sometimes if it's sort of on the butt or on the lower back, someone will point it out to them, and that'll kind of be what brings them in. So what uh, happened with this man? He was 1B. He had some moderately thick lesions. So we'll usually look at whatever we think the safest therapies are that might give long-term control. So we initially started just on phototherapy, which was narrowband UVB. And he had some improvement, but not great improvement with that. 
So at that point, we added a low dose of a retinoid called bexerotine, which is one of our more common systemic treatments. The bexerotine treats the lymphoma itself, but it also makes the light more potent. So it's a good combination to give together. What do you tell patients to kind of prepare them for phototherapy in terms of what they actually go through? We'll usually describe the procedure. People either get it in an office or they get it at home if they have the lights installed. But it's basically you go into a small booth, which is just like a small closet that has what looks like fluorescent bulbs all around it that they go in initially, they're in there for just seconds because you don't want them to burn. They'll go two to three times a week and they're kind of build up to where they sort of get a base tan. Some people use the term medical tanning, which is kind of what it is. They stand in there and then as their skin builds up tolerance, once they get up usually to a couple minutes or more, you start to get an effective dose and you start to see some improvement. Do you ever get any jokes about them going into the microwave? Yeah, they, I don't hear. I hear you more know, cooking tanning. for a couple minutes. A lot of patients ask, "Can they just lay outside in their <laughs> yard?" And it's like, yeah, if you have a place where you're comfortable lying, you know, it tends to be on the bathing trunk area. So you maybe have to be without bathing trunks. So if you have a private area or, <laughs> or you're comfortable with your neighbors, there are people who do that. Do you see people get burns from it? People can get burns from phototherapy. You know, you try to titrate it up slowly to keep them just below a burn level. It's interesting, I have a woman from Russia who she's just not comfortable getting phototherapy there. She doesn't trust the dermatologist there. So about every three to six months, she takes a two-week vacation to Greece and just lies out in the sun. Hmm. Her skin clears up. Really? Then she goes back. Yeah, and uh, it's working for her. So we've discussed that, you know, that's not sort of the optimal way we give it. But if she's not getting worse, it's fine to do that. So what was going on with this man, though? It seems like he, after a while, things were getting worse. Yeah, so he did well for a while, but these are mild treatments. They often don't last forever. Then he progressed through that with really what was significantly extensive plaque. So initially it was just some increased thickening. And then he progressed to having about 50 or 60% of his skin involved, you know, with some thicker lesions. Some lesions were cracked and open. No real tumors, which would sort of be a change in stage. So he was still at stage 1B, but he sort of clearly wasn't, wasn't being controlled by these combinations of therapy anymore. So at that point, you have a couple of decisions to make. You know, you can go to other systemic therapies. Where bexaterotene is an oral retinoid, the main side effects are hypothyroidism and hyperlipidemia, which we can usually, particularly if we give it at low doses, control with other medications. The other systemic therapies would be things like histone deacetylase inhibitors, romadepsin or an oral histone deacetylase inhibitor called varinostat. There's chemotherapies. We use gemcitabine. We'll use pralotrexate. Interferon can be used, but that often has more side effects. So based on how he was in his age, we were a little worried about long-term tolerance of some of the other systemic agents. And given the extent of disease, we recommended that he get total skin radiation, which is a technique. You need a special radiation setup because the patient needs to be very far from the beam. So it's more of a standing position rather than lying on a table. And it's a technique where they can give electrons, which don't penetrate very far, but by putting the patient in different positions, they can give radiation to the whole skin. Compared to the other treatments for mycosis fungoides, this one has a very high response rate. So almost everybody will get into remission with that, but often the remissions are not very durable. So occasionally patients can have remissions that last years. It's not uncommon that the disease can recur within months, but it does tend to clear the skin and sort of reset the clock in people whose disease has kind of gotten out of control. So what happened? So he had that. He tolerated okay. There's a lot of fatigue. So in older patients, it's not necessarily easy treatment, but it's easier than a lot of the systemic therapies for them. He had a great response. He cleared his skin back and actually developed a few new spots a few months later that grew more quickly than average. And at that point, we did a biopsy that showed a transformation of mycosis fungoides. So similar to how low-grade B-cell lymphomas like follicular can transform to diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, 
Mycosis fungoides can on occasion transform to a large T-cell lymphoma. In his case, it looks like it's still combined to the skin, but that transformed lymphoma, not always, but often has a higher growth rate, harder to control, higher propensities. It's not really an indolent disease anymore, higher propensity to make you sick. And what's his current situation? So this just happened within the last few weeks. So usually people with transformed disease, unless it's just a single area of transformation that you can address with radiation, we think about some of the stronger therapies. You can sometimes get away with a mild therapy, but he's already been on Bexerity in the past. So we were thinking about chemotherapy for him. We've actually had reasonably good results with pralotrexate, which would have been one of my choices. We are doing a study combining pralotrexate with bexeritine, so we actually offered that study, and he's just starting that now. So giving pralotrexate, which we know can have a good response, but seeing if by adding it to the bexeritine, we can get a better response and get better durability. I next met with Ms. Molly Moran to further explore management of NHL and CLL, and to do this, she presented several patients from her practice, beginning with a man with mantle cell lymphoma. This is a 59-year-old gentleman who presented with some left upper quadrant pain, and not too uncommon when presenting with a lymphoma in the belly to present with some upper quadrant pain. And he actually presented to the ER, so the pain was severe enough, but it had been going off and on for you know about a month or so. They did a CAT scan in the ER workup, eventually led to a biopsy of a very large retroperitoneal mass, and he also had some inguinal nodes and a left pleural effusion, causing some symptoms with shortness of breath, some nodes in his axilla. They took the biopsy of the axilla mass, and it was positive for mantle cell lymphoma, flow cytometry and immunohistochemical staining, positive for CD20, which is common in lymphoma, CD5, which is positive in mantle cell, BCL2, and a KI67 that wasn't too high, and FISH of the cytogenetics was positive for 1114, which is diagnostic for mantle cell lymphoma, and he also had a bone marrow biopsy that was positive. White count initial presentation was 13.4. Hemoglobin and platelets were normal. He goes on to get treatment because he's obviously symptomatic with RCHOP for one cycle because of the pleural effusion because you didn't want to give methotrexate with that. And then he was switched over to rituximab and hyperzivad for eight cycles and went into a complete remission. He's followed now with just CAT scans every three months, and he'll do that for two years, and then four months for two years, and then six and so on, and hopefully he'll stay in remission. And that's where he sits now, having just finished the hyperzivad. So maybe we can kind of pick apart this case a little bit and go through some of the points that are made here. I'm kind of curious, what was his lifestyle like before this all happened, and what was his reaction? So this was a super active, you know, white-collar executive, middle management, who worked 9 to 5, was active. He had a daily exercise routine. He wasn't running marathons, but he had a daily exercise routine. Didn't have any other complicating histories, no diabetes, no heart disease, father of four, you know, grown and growing kids, married. When he came for his appointments, did he come by himself or with his spouse? His spouse came with him. Well, he, you know, he initially presented to the ER right. with the belly pain, and then they referred him. Once they did the CAT scan, they sent him out to us. So when you first met with him, I'm just kind of curious how you'd explain to a patient like this sort of what mantle cell is and what he could be expecting. Sure. So once the initial shock blows through them of having a diagnosis of cancer, we talk a lot about how mantle cell 
is a type of aggressive lymphoma, although it was categorized as a slower growing or indolent lymphoma for a long time, but through better diagnostic evaluations and more specificity of dividing up the lymphomas, certainly fish and things like that have improved our ability to divide these lymphomas out. And that mantle cell was a very aggressive type tumor that needed to be treated as such, but once responds to therapy, the outcomes can be very good. This is hard for someone to comprehend when they initially present because he was feeling pretty lousy. And so to try to explain to him that you may feel a little bit worse before you feel better, but you will feel better when we get rid of some of this tumor. That's a bit tricky. It was also hard for him to make the adjustment to, he wasn't going to be able to work too much. He would be able to get some hours in, but certainly he wouldn't be able to maintain his full-time employment with the cycles of therapy because they're given so frequently and require hospitalization. So I guess in a younger patient, like him, 59 years old, more aggressive approaches to therapy is utilized. For example, the rituximab hyper CVAD regimen that he got. What about transplant? Are there situations where you consider that as part of the upfront strategy? Sure. There's some good data that says that if you do an auto transplant as consolidation, that they tend to stay in remission a bit better. And so he's sort of just at the end of that therapy situation where he's going to be evaluated to have an auto transplant as consolidation therapy, which again is going to put him out of commission for quite a few weeks. And having just been through this whole repetitive cycles of chemo, he needs a bit of a breather. So can you maybe talk a little bit about what you said to prepare him when he was about to receive our hyper-CVAD in terms of what the components of the treatment are and what kind of patient education you did on it? Sure. So we talk about, obviously, the schedule and how he's going to need to come in the hospital off and on for the high-dose methotrexate. There's a lot of prep work that goes into talking about neutropenic fevers. And because these regimens are so toxic to the bone marrow and the peripheral blood counts, that neutropenia is a big risk factor when they're heading through this multiple repetitive cycles. And, you know, checking your temperature and when you get a fever, or if you don't know if you have a fever, if you're chilly, take your temperature rather than when you're having a sweat because that's the fever having gone through its max. That it's not okay to wait until the morning to give us a call when you have a fever because the likelihood is that you need to come in and get some IV antibiotic therapy. And that's a hard thing for, it tends to be harder for male patients, I think, and I don't mean that in a sort of a bad way, but I think everybody would rather wait till the morning to go to the doctor's office than to go to the ER. But explaining the urgency and emergency of not having a good immune system, no white counts, and the urgent treatment of neutropenia is critical in maintaining healthy behaviors in these patients. We talked about the possible need for transfusions, again, because of the hematopoietic toxicity of the regimen that he may require platelets or red blood cells, and that it wouldn't be unheard of to have those kind of treatments along the way. We also talked about some prophylactic antibiotics with patients. We treat them prophylactically for HSV and PCP pneumonia, and the importance of being able to stay on those regimens. The methotrexate tends to cause some mucositis. So we talk about good oral hygiene, nothing fancy, just rinsing your mouth out frequently with water is usually good enough. But if you wanted to use salt water rinses or mouthwashes that don't contain alcohol, those tend to be some good hints. So what actually happened to him when he got the R-hyper-CVAD? What kinds of problems did he encounter? 
So he never actually got admitted with any neutropenic fevers, which was good because he was able to stay out in between his cycles. But he did have some significant mucositis. He didn't get to the point where he couldn't keep down liquids and maintain some hydration and he was able to, you know, keep his calories going, but certainly had a lot of discomfort and pain. And so he actually required some oral pain medicines, some topical lidocaines. And again, that was difficult because you're trying to maintain healthy behavior. So that means eating and being active and those things. It's hard to do those things when you're having a hard time with some swallowing. He also had a lot of constipation with the vincas, and so that required some re-education as well and, you know, having to start some oral laxatives and stool softeners on a regular basis. And again, not letting those things get ahead of you and doing things preemptively. So overall, how long did it take for him to get through the treatment and how long did it take before he was kind of back to normal? So it took about five months, and about a month after chemo completed, he started to really feel like himself again. Certainly not back to baseline, but definitely better than when he had first started chemo, and sort of the energy was returning, you know, all the other side effects were going away. The counts were taking a little longer to come up, sort of lingering along, but about a good solid month, and that's usually rule of thumb of what I tell people is that there's no set point when you're going to feel better, and everybody's individual, but it's usually around a month, and for some reason people wake up and they say, I'm starting to feel like myself. And during the time that he was under treatment, what was his overall quality of life like? Was he able to carry on any of his normal lifestyle? How did he feel? He was. He was able to get some work days in and some work days from home. When he was in the hospital getting the methotrexate and waiting for his levels to come down, it was frustrating because he was starting to feel better. But he could do some online work and work from the hospital itself. And so it was frustrating for him. But it took some time, and he was able to adjust his work schedule and his lifestyle. He certainly appreciated going home from the hospital and sort of grumbled quite a bit when he had to go in every time. But again, looking at the big picture versus the short term, it was worth the investment. How do you think this experience up to this point has affected him and how he sees his life? I think it was a bit of a, as a diagnosis of such would be to anyone in that it sort of reevaluated some things and reprioritized what's important and certainly family sort of took the forefront there. He's got some kids that are sort of college age and just beyond college age and they, you know, were with him the whole way. They'd come in for his treatments and his, some of his visits and when time would allow. And I think they got some real, you know, close family bonding done and just some quiet time. And I think in a you know, ultimately positive way, they were able to get through this as a group and a family and use each other for support. Now, what kind of expectations did you and the team present to him in terms of his future? Did you discuss the issue of, you know, cure as opposed to not cure? Well, you know, we talk about the risk of relapse being greatest in the first couple of years, and that's why he would be watched so closely for any changes. And then if we needed to do more therapy, we'd go ahead and do that. He had such a robust response that we're hopeful that he's going to remain in a remission, a durable remission for a long time. Not always the case with mantle cell and that there is a high rate of relapse. And so, you know, the statistic that we talk about is always their N of one, and that's the one that matters. And so, you know, hoping that his would be long-term and sort of explaining that the auto transplant may help to boost that percentage and that those people tend to stay in remission a little better. 
if in the future he does require additional treatments, what are some of the therapies, particularly newer therapies that have come along in the last five or 10 years that are being utilized right now in recurrent disease? So bendamustine has shown some promise with good results. So a combination of bendamustine and rituximab. I think the rituximab or one of the other monoclonal antibodies for CD20 is going to continue to pop in there. We don't have a lot of great clinical trials available for mantle cell. There is such a small number in the population of lymphoma that you need to gather them from multiple sites, and so it's hard to accrue them. One of the agents that's been used in mantle cell has been bortezomib, which of course is used a lot in multiple myeloma. What do we know about bortezomib and mantle cell? It has a place in relapsed mantle cell, better than a 30% response rate there. So certainly that would be something to consider. One of the things that I always get worried about is the accumulation of peripheral neuropathies can certainly be worse with bortezomib. And I've had a few patients who have been treated with bortezomib who have had some pretty significant peripheral neuropathies that have been almost debilitating. And so we watched that very carefully, but it's also a good option. You know, we didn't have any of these options years ago, but certainly bortezomib is, you know, as good as a bendamustine rituximab response. Some trials looking at lenalidomide, which is an oral medicine, and so kind of keeping those in line as well. And in terms of the types of neuropathy that you've seen with bortezomib, any comments on that? The ones that I have experience with bortezomib tend to be in their lower extremities. And when they're significant enough, they affect the way the person's able to walk. And that can happen in short order. And so we try to be very cognizant of evaluating them for peripheral neuropathy on every visit, taking into consideration things like the addition of vitamin D and some of the B complexes. And then certainly if we need to use any supportive measures for the treatment of the painful neuropathies, some of the gabapentins, things like that. You also mentioned lenalidomide. Can you talk a little bit about that agent in terms of how it's given and what you've observed in terms of its benefits and risks? Sure. Lenalidomide is given as an oral agent. It is a biologic response modifier. It has anti-angiogenesis properties, meaning that it prevents the development of blood vessels and blood vessel formation. But it also, with its biologic response modifiers, tends to rev up the immune system for better recognition and then some actual cell kill as well. And so it's given as an oral medication, and they usually take it on a 21-day cycle with a seven-day rest period and then start up again for 21 days. People tend to tolerate it very well. Very little in terms of GI toxicity, although there's some diarrhea associated with it. And then there's a process through which when you put someone on one of these analogs of thalidomide, there's a lot of tetragenicity associated. And so there's a process for making sure that they're safely taking the medication and that no one else takes it. And they use barrier methods for birth control. There's a process in which you need to register patients for that as well. Because it's an oral medication and it's taken at home, patients tend to like that. But one of my concerns with using a lot of these oral medications, oral chemotherapies, that you have to be cognizant of compliance and how much the patients are actually taking the medicine and when they're taking it, are they taking it as directed. And getting that feedback from the patients takes a lot of energy and effort from the staff in that you need to have people who are in tune with the right questions to ask, bring your pill bottles back with you, things like that. 
And the responses with lenalidomide are a little bit slower than you would expect with other chemotherapies because biologic response modifiers tend to take tincture of time and the use of the immune system. And so it takes a little bit more of a response time. But initially, when they get started on the medicine, if they have enlarged adenopathy, those lymph nodes tend to flare and get painful and tender and believed in part from the immune response and that the immune system's kind of rushing in there to do its job. Are you involved in any clinical trials right now in mantle cell? We are. We have a relapsed trial using an oral BTK inhibitor, Ibertinib. And so, again, an interesting look at another oral medication that inhibits another pathway with some of the same side effects as the lenalidomide with the painful lymph nodes. And, you know, initially their peripheral counts cruise down a little bit, but recover pretty quickly. Not too many people on that study yet, and too early to say anything what's happening there. Let's talk about your 63-year-old lady with diffuse large B-cell. She is a 63-year-old woman, and she presented with some back pain, but also some bee symptoms, some fevers, weight loss, and night sweats. Presented to her primary care doctor, they did a CAT scan that showed a pancreatic mass and some lymph nodes that were above and below the diaphragm, as well as a pleural effusion. They did a biopsy of her pancreatic mass because there was obviously concern for pancreatic cancer, and the mass was positive for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Cells were positive for CD45 and 20, negative for CK7, CA199, which are markers for pancreatic cancer. It characteristically, morphologically looked like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. She had a bone marrow biopsy that was negative for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, negative for CMIC and EBER, which are prognostic indicators in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. It was considered a stage 4B because it involved the pancreas. She got treated with six cycles on a clinical trial of combination medications the regimen is called REPOC. She also got prophylactic interthecal methotrexate. The clinical trial is a phase three clinical trial that looks at RCHOP, which is standard diffuse large B cell therapy versus dose-adjusted EPOC-R in previously untreated diffuse large B cell lymphoma. She had a lot of peripheral neuropathy. She had gastric ulcers, neutropenic fevers. She was able to get into a CR and she's a couple years out now, and she's getting CAT scans every four months for two years. And so she's doing very well. Now, did she have any CNS prophylaxis? She did. She got prophylaxis with interthecal methotrexate. She was considered a stage four because of this large pancreatic mass and all these big retroperitoneal nodes. And that tends to be one of the reasons that you would prophylax a patient with diffuse large B cell. So can you talk a little bit more about exactly what's involved in the prophylaxis, when it's done, how it's done, and how she tolerated it? Yeah, so the general premise is that if patients have stage 4 diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, if they have bone marrow involvement, if they have masses that are near the central nervous system, things like nasopharyngeal masses or sinus masses, if they're EBER positive or CMIC positive, which makes them a bit more aggressive in lymphoma world, they tend to get prophylaxis. If they have an HIV-associated lymphoma, they get a prophylaxis with interthecal therapy. And so we use interthecal methotrexate. Sometimes it's buffered with a little bit of steroids. And depending on how well they tolerate it, it's given with each cycle of therapy, usually on the first day. 
if their architecture of their spinal column is intact, it can be done at the bedside. Oftentimes, these patients tend to be a bit older, and you need to have their therapy done under fluoroscopy, where they can do it under x-ray, and the procedure goes sometimes quicker and less invasive, as less invasive as a spinal tap can be. Fluid is removed, and then slowly the chemotherapy is injected. The fluid that's removed is always checked for cultures and cell count to make sure they aren't developing any infections and to make sure that there isn't any of the lymphoma developing in there. The side effects of interthecal chemotherapy vary, but can range from headaches to nausea, vomiting, changes in vision, seizures, infections, the whole gamut. And so they're monitored fairly closely. It's always done under sterile technique. What happened with her specifically when she got She tolerated it very well. The first three doses she was able to get at the bedside, but then as scar tissue started to form and it was becoming more difficult to do her procedure, she was switched over to fluoroscopy, and that went very well. How long does it actually take to infuse the medication? The interthecal push is infused over about five minutes. Hmm, okay. i uh, ask you the same question I asked about the first man, just sort of looking at her from afar. How do you think this experience has affected her and her family? This was a gal who was a widow and came with her daughters. And you could tell right from the get-go that they were an involved, informed family. They came for every appointment. They were involved with every step of the way. The family rearranged their schedules to allow for her transport to and from the hospital. Getting someone to go on this clinical trial, the choice is difficult sometimes for the patient because in one scenario with the just the R chop, it's given one day, every 21 days as an outpatient, and the R epoch is given inpatient. And they usually are in the hospital for about five days, four days, and then the additional day. And that's a little hard to, you know, do you want to go in the hospital for five days every month or do you want to stay outpatient? Most people obviously would choose to be outpatient. But with the way her daughters worked and she was considering their schedules and their times, and this worked out to be the better answer for them as to going on the, I mean, they obviously got randomized, but it's a blinded randomization. But she was okay with the prospect of going into the hospital. So let's talk about your 65-year-old man with follicular lymphoma. This guy is a 65-year-old gentleman who went to his primary doctor with abdominal discomfort. Now, it took him three months to get to his primary care doctor. He had some GERD that he treated orally, you know, over-the-counter stuff, and his wife told him, stop eating. So much. And so it was like a long period before he went on to get some evaluation. It got to the point where the discomfort was pretty significant. And I believe that his wife was tired of the complaining. And so that prompted the doctor's visit. They did a CAT scan. You know, since he had tried all the -the over-the-counter medicines, they said, "Uh, let's just get a CAT scan and see what's happening. So they did a CAT scan and he had some retroperitoneal lymph nodes. They did a biopsy that wasn't diagnostic. For whatever reason, the pain subsided for a while. And he was followed with CAT scans for about a year before these masses, these lymph nodes in his retroperitoneum started to change again. He also had a change in his peripheral counts. He developed some thrombocytopenia. They did a bone marrow biopsy, and it was positive for follicular lymphoma. The CAT scans, again, showed the increased lymphadenopathy, and he had a grade 2 out of 3 follicular lymphoma. He was symptomatic. He had fatigue and malaise. He had a significant cardiac history with CHF-CAD, cardiomyopathy, AFib, diabetes, hypertension, 
And they opted for his first round of treatment to be arbendamustine for six cycles, and he was able to achieve a complete response. His bone marrow was negative, and his lymph nodes had all resolved. He had some initial delays in the beginning cycles because of his failure for his counts to recover, and he had some dose adjustments early on, started at 80 milligrams per meter squared, but then was able to decrease to 50 milligrams per meter squared, and went on to get all of the therapy without difficulty at that 50 milligrams per meter squared dose. Now, you know, in patients with follicular lymphoma who are deemed necessary to require treatment, such as this man with chemo and rituximab, as you mentioned, he got bendamustine, but another common option that's been utilized is so-called RCHOP. I guess in him that wasn't a consideration because of the heart problems and the doxorubicin. Correct. How are you generally approaching the, the use of chemotherapy in these patients? Are you usually using RCHOP, bendamustine, or both? I think RCHOP falls further down in the line because, like you mentioned, the cardiac toxicities and this population tends to be a little bit older. They usually have a little bit more complicated medical history, whether it's diabetes or prostate issues or lung issues or, in this gentleman's case, some cardiac issues. And you're not going to cure this disease. This is a disease that you're going to treat. It's going to be quiescent for a while. You're going to come back and treat it again. And so, you know, trying to maintain lifestyle and doing as little harm up front as you can to get them to the point of a remission or a response seems to be the better way to go. Although that being said, RCHOP has great responses as well. And I think if I'm not mistaken, if somebody's got a lot of bulky adenopathy in our group, we tend to use the RCHOP if the rest of their medical picture fits it. It tends to make lymph nodes smaller pretty quickly with the cyclophosphamide and the steroids. At the other end of the spectrum, follicular lymphoma sometimes will present with a lot less aggressive disease, a lot less disease. And in that situation in the past, some patients have actually been observed off treatment and some patients are receiving rituximab alone. How do you approach those kinds of patients? Exactly. And reiterating to them again that this is not a curable disease and that treating these slower-growing tumors, the slower-growing lymphomas, the chronic leukemias, CLL in particular, there's not a huge benefit in treating earlier than later in that you're not going to cure it. If you're treating it, you're using some type of chemotherapy, whether it's monoclonal antibodies or biologic response modifiers or a straight-up chemotherapy. And again, those are not without their toxicities. And so if you're not having problems from the disease and the patient is doing well, then watching, observing over a period of time is a realistic therapy. So this man completed his bendamustine rituximab after he completed that treatment, and you mentioned he had a great response, did he receive or was there a discussion about whether to use rituximab alone as maintenance treatment? There was a discussion, and he opted, usually we would do quarterly rituximab, a dose every quarter. Every three months, we'd give him a dose of rituximab. He opted not to do that. He wanted to be done with therapy for a while. He wanted to not have anything to do with the doctors, and that was understandable. What was his lifestyle like? He was a traveler. He was going, doing. He wanted to be out and about. They would snowbird in Florida every winter. And, you know, this was a difficult year for them to be told that he couldn't do those kind of things. And so he didn't want to have any part of that. Explained again that there's a benefit to the maintenance, right, tuximab. 
and that he should seriously reconsider it, but he, no go. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. And he stayed in a remission, a good solid remission for about two years, and then he had some worsening lymphadenopathy. What happened exactly? So some of the lymph nodes started to increase. He had been followed with CAT scans on a fairly regular basis and was starting to get some of the same symptoms back. Now, we had to biopsy him again because there's always a concern that there's a transformation from a low-grade lymphoma to a high-grade lymphoma. And so when he had some lymph nodes that were coming up, we did another needle biopsy that confirmed again that he had, indeed, follicular lymphoma relapse again. Same grade, same location, same everything. So he got initiated on some lenalidomide and a little bit of steroids and weekly rituximab for four weeks to treat his lymphoma with some great response. Again, he had initially the lymph nodes increased in size and were painful, got treated with a little steroids, held the lenalidomide for a day or two, three days, depending on how he felt, and then restarted it. And as the nodes got smaller, certainly the rituximab was helping to shrink the nodes as well. And he was able to continue on. He had to have some dose reductions because of his counts as well. Again, given on a 21-day cycle with a seven-day respite. And so a cycle was considered 28 days. You mentioned this phenomena where you can see the lymph nodes increase in size when you start treatment with lenalidomide. Was he actually aware of it himself? Could he feel them getting bigger? Not necessarily bigger, but more bothersome. His symptoms increased. There were some that he had that were superficial that seemed to get a little bit bigger and a little more tender. And so he could notice those, but more it was the symptoms for him. And what did you say to him? that this is a response to the medication and that the lenalidomide causes a increase in the activity in the immune system and then the immune system's ability to recognize lymphoma cells and that you sort of get this inflammation around the lymphadenopathy and that we would treat it as symptomatic and adjust the lenalidomide as we could. So you don't want to call it a good symptom because I don't think any change in the patient status is a good thing like that. That's causing discomfort or pain. And so we get encouraged and then we try to adjust the symptoms as we can. On the other end of the spectrum, you don't want that all to occur at once because then you can get into a world of hurt with cytokine release and these sort of flare responses. And if the lymph nodes are in places that are going to cause trouble, if you had lymphadenopathy in and around, say, your bile duct or somewhere that was going to get clogged off by bigger lymph nodes, that would certainly be problematic. So another treatment that might be a consideration in this man, I'm curious whether it actually came up when you were taking care of him, was radioimmunotherapy. Was this discussed with him or considered? In this particular patient, it was not. However, in other follicular lymphoma patients, it has been considered the idea behind radioimmunotherapy is that you give a dose of a monoclonal antibody that is tagged with a piece of radiation therapy so you can deliver directly to the tumor sites, and so the lymphadenopathy. This is a gentleman who initially had bone marrow positivity for his lymphoma. His lymphoma was in his bone marrow to begin with. And in order to receive a radioimmunotherapy, it's required that they have less than 25% involvement of their bone marrow. And I don't think he did initially. One of the concerns is that if you have more than 25% involvement with your bone marrow, you're inadvertently going to be delivering doses of radiation to that same bone marrow, and you can burn out the reserves. In patients who've been eligible to receive radioimmunotherapy, what have you observed in terms of how they tolerate it and the responses? 
they tend to tolerate it very well. It's a very predictable response. They're, you know, slow but sure. Their lymphadenopathy decreases. They have a dip in their platelets that lasts, you know, probably from the second week on, lasts till about week number six, you know, about 30 days, a little bit more. Slowly starts to increase. We watch their counts pretty regularly, maybe on a weekly basis or so. And the patients that we have used it in have certainly had some durable responses in the three plus four years. They get a dose that doesn't have the, they used to get a dose that doesn't have the rituximab, and some of that's been adjusted based on their scanning. It's an involved process for the institution, but for the patients, it's very, very easy to get through. Okay, let's talk about your last patient, the 64-year-old man. Yes, my CLL patient. This is a 64-year-old gentleman who was initially diagnosed with CLL incidentally, as most CLL patients are. He was going for another routine exam and was found to have an elevated white blood cell count. He had some large lymph nodes. His white count was 29,000. 87% of those were lymphocytes. Hemoglobin 13,8 and a platelet 82,000. So he had some other counts that were off as well. He had a bone marrow biopsy that was positive for CLL, positive for CD19, dim for CD20, positive for CD5 and CD38, all markers for CLL. He was initially treated because of his worsening counts. He had been, you know, sort of followed and his counts were starting to get worse and his lymph nodes were getting a little bit bigger. And he initially received fludarabine and rituximab for two cycles, but had some increase in his lymphadenopathy in his neck. And then he was changed to receive pentastatin, cyclophosphamide, and rituximab for six cycles with a good partial response. He was watched for a while, and then he had increasing lymphadenopathy and went on to get bendamustine and rituximab for six cycles for a PR. Again, these are patients who you're not going to cure them. They get treated. They go into remission for a while. They stay quiescent for a while, and then you end up treating them again as the disease comes back. And depending on the span in between the treatments, whether you go back to the original treatment or not is up for question. He went on to get like I said, six cycles of bendamustine and rituximab. Again, went into a partial response. The lymph nodes went down, the counts got better. Over time, he developed worsening thrombocytopenia and worsening lymph nodes. He had a rebiopsy because he had lymph nodes that were sort of growing at a rate that was a bit higher than expected. And in CLL patients, there's a concern for Richter's transformation when patients with CLL transform into a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So anytime there's a change in the growth rate of the lymphadenopathy or one area of lymph nodes in particular, we tend to do a biopsy to make sure that they haven't transformed. And he did not. He remained as a CLL patient. And he went on to get dexamethasone. He had some lymph nodes that came down. And then he was eligible to go on and get lenalidomide and rituximab. He was treated with that for about a month, and he did not have any great response there. Counts kept getting worse. Lymph nodes were getting bigger. And he was started on rituximab plus CHOP for six cycles and had a good PR. Now he's in the queue to potentially be treated on a clinical trial, again, with the oral BTK inhibitor. I'm curious, again, what his life was like prior to this time and what it's been like since he's had CLL. Yeah, this is a gentleman who is a high-level executive in a very large company that requires a lot of travel, a very high-stress job. He's a very intense personality. He's very active in his work. He's very involved in his company. And this diagnosis 
when he was initially diagnosed with CLL with a little bit of lymphadenopathy and some elevated white count, was told that if this is the cancer you're going to have, this is the good one. This is the one you want to have by a general oncologist. And so was initially able to maintain that high level of function within the company and the travel and all of that. And then as things started to change and he required more treatments and more hospitalizations and all kinds of visits to the doctor and stuff, that rattled his ability to be able to maintain that lifestyle. So it was extremely frustrating for this gentleman and it took a lot of time and encouragement from his family to sort of change the switch and say, I need to focus on getting better with this and sort of focus my time on these issues. And what's his lifestyle like nowadays? So he's figured out a way to sort of balance things out. He's doing a lot more telecommuting and is able to do things more electronically and has also been able to set up some backup plans at the office and through his company in that he's able to get that time to focus on him and his family. Something that I don't know was there much prior to this period in his life. Interesting. And you can see the change over time in the way that the family interacts and that initially he was the in-charge control of the entire situation. And now, not that he's giving up control, but he's allowing people to help him. Interesting. Yeah. Do you tend to see problems with infections in patients with CLL? Yeah, very much so. A lot of times we'll see patients who are not receiving treatment for their chronic lymphocytic leukemia, they'll start to get infections on a more regular basis. And, you know, anecdotally, and your gut tells you that they're going to start to require some treatment for their CLL in the not-so-distant future. And so they'll tend to get a lot of repeat infections, sinus infections. We hope they don't ever get the flu, but that's something that can happen. Just sort of ongoing repeated infections, skin infections, bladder infections, and they start to require treatment. Sometimes if they require hospitalization or they get frequent bad infections, we'll support them with immunoglobulins, infusions of IVIG and try to keep them. It doesn't stop them from getting infections, but what it does do is prevent them from having infections that will require them to land in the hospital, and so that can be beneficial too. We were talking before about rituximab maintenance. When You mentioned giving it for a couple of years after our chemo. What about infections in that situation? Yeah, so cumulatively they can develop some infections, and you can see these delayed neutropenia, delayed nadirs, when people use rituximab on a maintenance basis. And so being cognizant of where their counts are, but generally they tolerate them well because they do have a three-month lag time between their doses. But yeah, you can certainly see some delayed neutropenia and infection. We often keep those patients on prophylaxis for PCP and HSV as well, all the way through. Any myths or misperceptions out there that you think people might have about any of these tumors that we've talked about today? Yeah, I think that there's especially in the chronic diagnoses, the folliculars and the CLLs, is that people can live a long time with these diseases and that, you know, the treatments are often spaced out and that you're most likely going to be able to maintain some semblance of normal life. And just because you've had a cancer diagnosis, survivorship is a definite issue and a definite possibility. And so maintaining healthy lifestyle, you know, people always ask, what can I do? So maintaining healthy lifestyle eat well, get some exercise, sleep well, 
you know, keep your ducks in a row for God forbid, whatever, but don't go out and rack up your credit cards. <laughs> you know, and I guess that's some of the interpretation that people see. And you often see it in people's faces when they're given a diagnosis of chronic lymphocytic leukemia. They hear the word leukemia and everything else in their brain shuts off. And so, you know, talking people through and getting them to understand that this is a chronic disease that comes and goes and gets treated. And depending on where you are in your staging of your disease and when you need treatment, you could be around for a long time with these diseases. Do you see any patients with T-cell lymphoma? I personally don't. We have a whole separate clinic that works with the T-cell lymphomas, and they tend to be followed by the T-cell lymphoma specialists and dermatology. They co manage the clinic and because a lot of the cutaneous obviously ones the cutaneous ones present with skin rashes that are different there are a lot of new drugs that are available there's topical drugs and they're look at some of the monoclonal antibody therapy and there are options now for t-cell lymphomas that didn't really exist before either this concludes our program special thanks to our faculty and thank you for listening This is Dr. Neil Love. We're Oncology Nursing Update. 